There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with What's Your Favorite Scary Movie, a chronological exploration of the Scream franchise. And we're back for part three, which means we're talking about Scream 3. Yes, uh, I know the show seems to only be coming out once a month now, and it's usually just for these miniseries, so I apologize for our listeners of that. I hope to become a little more frequent with this show, but we'll just see how life plans out like that, because it's, uh, it's, a, little, it's, uh, it's a little crazy sometimes, but... Before I ramble on any longer, let me introduce my guest, Mr. Mike Wilson. How are you doing there? Hi, Alma. Damn it. I didn't get a good one there. That was close. I, I, uh, fuck. I got no good burps today. It's coming out of the other end, that's for sure. Oh, you, yeah. You're just full of hot air. Both of us are. Gee, thanks. <laughs> uh, whenever I think of that, I just think of that really crit- like line from The Quick and the Dead. When he's trying to, oh, he's, uh, I think he's killing Lance Hendrickson. He's like, and a bladder full of hot air, Gene Hackman, as he fills him with lead at one point. But, yeah. Like I said, we're talking about Screen 3, so let's jump into our review of it right now. Okay, now, what was your first experience with this movie? How did you were you hyped for this movie when it was coming out? Actually, yes. Okay. At this point, I had watched the first two screen movies. You know, I was in like full horror movie mode, watching everything I possibly could, mm-hmm. seeing tons of stuff once, usually on, usually on cable, and just you know, really crappy transfers. Mm-hmm. Thank God for Blu-ray these days. I can finally watch these movies and actually see things. Yes. Like, it isn't just completely dark the whole time. Right. But... Like Slaughter High. No, fucking Prom Night. That was the worst Oh, defender. Prom Night, yeah. Uh, there, there we you go. go. I did it. Oh. I'm full of Dairy Queen right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I was definitely hype as hell for this. Uh, I went to go see this, I believe, opening night. Yeah, opening night. Uh, I was hanging out with a friend. Uh, I was still in high school. I was, what, 16 at the time? Mm-hmm. And my friend, he had a movie theater within walking distance. We used to just walk over to the uh, shopping center it was in mm-hmm. and, you know, hang out, do whatever. Just a place to loiter, you know? Of a course. Lot. But when we wanted to go see a movie, we'd see a movie there. And they also had that awesome Lethal Enforcers arcade game. Oh, really? With, with, with the uh, the pink and the blue revolver guns. Right. And all the digitized bank robbers and whatnot mm-hmm. 
you got to shoot them all. Like there's, there's got to be like hundreds or thousands of bank robbers for this one heist. You know? Yeah, it, 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 you would hope that the the payoff is worth it. Where they had to get like thirty seven dollars, but everything said seriously. Died. By the time it's thirty seven dollars, with the amount of thirty seven cents, <laughs> shit, man, not even enough to cover the tolls to, not even enough to cover, <laughs> to, yeah, to get the hell out of the country because that's the only way you were able to get away from it with all that money. Exactly. Imagine that heist. Just like you have this like auditorium. You have like the Joel Osteen auditorium <laughs> filled with people you want to hire for this bank robbery, and they're literally all just there as muscle. That's it. it. It reminds me of that like, that one uh, mission in GTA San Andreas where CJ's in the bottom of uh, Wuji's um, casino and they're trying to plan the uh, casino robbery. And just people are so random people coming in thinking that something else is going on here. And he has to tell them to F off because it's like, no, like we're, this is not just an attraction going on here. It's a, it's a bank robbery uh, planning heist. Uh, mm. Please fuck off. Yeah. But anywho, I saw it there opening night. And... Uh, you know what? I was planning for about two months to interrupt you when you did the intro to now call this Welcome to Unpopular Opinion, the podcast, because I am actually a bigger fan of Scream 3 than I am of Scream 2. Scream 1 is still my all-time favorite mm-hmm. of the whole series. That will not change. I feel it stands alone perfectly on its own or as a beginning chapter. But Scream 2, I wasn't too hot on as you might have listened to last month. I don't think it's a bad movie. Let me get that out right now. I do not think it's a bad movie. I'm not big into a lot of the new characters. I feel like the killers are kind of weak. You know, in, in, in Mickey in motivation, Mrs. Loomis in the ability to be a serial killer. That's not being sexist, but she is a middle-aged person who probably, if she was... Uh, it, in uh, sports in her life, it would have been decades earlier. Mm-hmm. And the older you get, you know, the less, this is not age shaming. This is not gender shaming. What the fuck are you looking at me like that I'm for? not looking at you. I'm just looking at you. You have this, like, quizzical, wide-eyed look, like, wow. I'm gonna... I, I, <laughs> no one's I, going I, to like me after this I, for letting I like this guy people out. digging ditches. I like watching people dig ditches. So that's what I'm doing right now, watching you dig your own grave I'm digging right a grave, yeah, because, <laughs> because the internet. Thank you. No, but still, like... I don't buy Jackie from Roseanne as a serial killer. Uh, I get that, but like I'm pr- pretty sure there's plenty of middle-aged uh, marathon runners that could possibly be serial killers if they wanted to. There probably are some serial killers that run marathons. I-, I buy her motivation. I buy the fact that she probably had Mickey do most of it. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you know, fought Sydney with pure rage because this is the person who killed her son. Mm-hmm. And the fact that a lot of these people were co- – well, her kill with Randy because she admitted to getting knife happy. There. She caught him completely by surprise. Right. I'm sorry, I don't, but unpopular opinion the podcast. But for whatever reason, it, it never felt like a finality to me, you know? It, it, it felt like, and I think that was the intent as well, because... Yeah, even Kevin Williamson intended it to be just a, a part two. Well, but also the simple fact that it's self-aware as a sequel. Its reveal of killers is like your typical sequel killers. Like, this has no real... It does and it doesn't have real bearing on the overarching case of everything, which is why I love the killer reveal in this one because it's like, oh, my God, we've gotten to the root of this. Mm. We've gotten to why this has all happened. It's respon- the, the, the reveal of the killer is why these three movies have happened in the first place. I did not get that with Scream 2. Well, I like it because it addresses things that, like, copycats can happen. Oh, totally. And so that's why I enjoy it. Like, sure, it is a little hackneyed. Uh, and it's a little mismanaged when it comes to Scream Two, but I also really, uh, but I really dig, especially in the 1990s. And there's so many 
widely publicized trials going on and it makes sense why they would want to satirize it with scream too. That's why I get, I understand Mickey's, I don't agree with it obviously, but I understand where Mickey's coming from motivation wise, no, but I think we're going to agree to disagree on that. When one. it comes, when it comes to this story, I feel the, the big reveal and motivation at the end has more, so much more gravity to it. Well, it's supposed to be because it's the yep. end of the, it's supposed to be the end of a, it, it works for me so much better than mm. scream. Two. But you love finality. I really do. I love it when a story can be told and have an ending, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know, maybe just because I'm every year I'm that much closer to my own grave that I'm digging right now, you know. Mm-hmm. It'll be 35 this year. Woo! So I got to remember to send in that AARP registration mm-hmm. and pick out my tombstone. I have already picked it out for you. You've already picked it out? Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's periwinkle blue. I like blue. Blue is my favorite color. So. Same here. But... But yes, I. Did I'm you like to... immediately when you walked out of the first screening of this? Did you immediately like it more than Scream Two? Yes, actually. And how did your friend take it? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really. I think he was satisfied. Okay. But you know, there's a lot of things that this movie gets criticisms for, and, and many of them are I don't want to say deserved, but they are Slightly valid. Warranted. Valid. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that this. Is a better movie than Scream Two. I'm saying I like it better. Oh yeah, and if you're not. It's you, all this subject, is entirely. Being, this is entirely personal preference. Yeah, I mean, you're not saying like, oh, objectively, Scream Three is better than Scream Two. You're not no. saying it. You're just saying subjectively, this is, you personally this prefer is this. Based on total personal preference, I will gladly explain why as we go on. And right, and I'm sure the listeners will want to hear that, and they're probably curious about that, and see if you could win them back. And over. hopefully, they'll put out their torches and put their pitchforks back. I don't know. We got the Universal uh, Rioters on our hand right here. Like they, they are kind of a rambunctious bunks when, uh, when they get a. Uh, when I posted uh, a pic of, I took a screenshot of the Screen Three um, uh, title card on your TV, and I sent it to a movie group I'm part of. Majority of the comments are like, "Nope, you can skip this. Don't do it. Don't rewatch it." And I'm just really? like, uh, "But I understand why they feel like that." But I think. The fact that we were able to, my co-host Jamie Julian on the other podcast, please rewind the RF4M retro show, that he's not a, he does not like Scream 2 whatsoever. We were able to make him hate it just a little bit less with All our right. podcast. I feel like there is a yes, potential. A victory. Yeah, I think it's a slight victory. I, t- I take any victory I can, like getting up in the morning. Um, so I think there's a potential that we might be able to win a few people over with this podcast. And for people that are telling us to skip it, we covered fucking Halloween Resurrection. Come on now. There is no low we will not stoop to. That's true. And both versions of Halloween 6. And both versions of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Sorry. I, I think we'll do just fine. <laughs> I think we'll be okay in the end. I think everything's going to turn out all right. It's like Harvey Keitel, Reservoir Dogs. You're going to be Okay. Say the goddamn words, but um, is there anything else you want to say about your early screening of it? Um, did you did you immediately feel kind of like attacked amongst friends and everything who, who like horror movies because you enjoyed this more than Scream Two? No, because I didn't have many friends that liked horror movies. Okay, <laughs> my step siblings thought it was a cool movie. So okay, they were fine with it. Nobody, and, and this was you know, like the internet was a thing, but. There wasn't any social media, at least that I was aware of back then. I mean, yeah, you had your alt.net 
Mm-hmm. Chat rooms. You had all your MSN chat rooms, your AOL chat rooms. Chatobsessive.net. Yes, you had all that stuff, but I was—I didn't even know what the fuck that was. To tell you the truth, like right. I, I, that's what—that's why it took me—it took me like ten years to understand the plot of the first Mission Impossible. Oh, okay, because it was so dependent on the earliest form of the internet mm-hmm. that, like, I'm I, I just confused the whole freaking time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious. I didn't know if it was. This is like one of the things. Like you just like kept. Quietly to yourself, like, I kind of like Scream 3. You just didn't want to no, say it to people. I unabashedly writing. will always say that I love Scream 3. Okay. Um, and my, you? My experience, I remember seeing the trailers for this. And I remember it was two very distinct moments in the trailer. One is when we see Lee Travis Cotton where he walked down the hallway and he seems to bring, we see, we now know it's a fire poker up to him in a like defensive mode. Since like it was just like a CRTV and it was kind of like not the greatest quality, I thought it was a sword at one point. I'm like, why does Cotton Ware have a sword? Like, wow, this is really getting extreme. And then since I liked him so much in Scream Two, and I'm like, oh, he's got. I hope he's the hero again in this one. And another moment is that when I think it was like maybe the last part of the trailer is that when Dewey and the gang inside Jennifer's house, they all they all get together after Stone's been killed, and they're like, all right, nobody panic. And the lights go off and they all scream. I think that was like the stinger of the end of the trailer. Like those very two distinct moments I remember of the trailer for Scream 3. So, of course, I was hyped at this point because this is when I'm starting to become a horror fan, slowly but surely. And I remember, I did not see this in theaters. I remember seeing this on VHS. And I have a very distinct memory because this came out, I think it was February 3rd, 2000. I think that's the date. Something like that. And... I think this by the point this uh, movie came out on home video, I think it was July because I think it was, it might have been June or July, and I was over at my Aunt Rosie and Uncle Tom's house where I remember they had rented Scream 3 and they had the VHS there on a table inside the living room. And it, I, I guess it wasn't a blockbuster. I think it must have been a local um, video rental store because it was the clear plastic. It didn't have a logo on it. I saw like, oh, Scream 3, I want to watch it. And I think they end up playing cards and then and I end up just isolating myself watching this in, in the living room by myself and everything. And then that's the first memory I had from it. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I didn't have that huge of a barometer of enjoying it. I don't think I, 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 I did enjoy the ending, like the very last scene, like the epilogue to the movie. I did enjoy that. But my overall thoughts like, okay, that's, that's the ending. And I could kind of move on from that. And... I think that's at that point I was also getting into the, starting my fandom for comic book movies because X Men came out that summer of 2000, and that's when like I started. I still think that X Men came out in 1999, and I don't know why. Why do something you... in my head still thinks that it came out in summer of 99, not summer of 2000? But I don't know. I don't know why. I know some people think like a lot of people mix up thinking Batman and Robin came out in 99. Like no, that came out in 97. 97. And the same year, The Blade came out. So, like, we had two diametrically opposed uh, kind of comic book movies coming out that year. And yeah, I have very distinct memories seeing the very early Marvel movies in theaters, but let me, I'll get to that another day. And so I'm like, okay. And I remember this one I would rent from the library, I think, the least. I think I think one week I did end up taking all three out and watching them again. And I think I remember, like, five or six years later. I remember my stepbrother got a bootleg VHS. Really? Yeah. So we had that around the house. Was it any, like, poorer quality than you get, like, from a regular VHS? I truthfully cannot remember. And back in those days, I don't want to say that because of the old CRT standards and 
how VCRs were commonly hooked up and the limitations of VHS that you couldn't tell the difference between a bootleg and a, and a retail release. Because mm-hmm. I do remember uh, one of my uncles actually got me a bootleg of the original Mortal Kombat when it first came out. Really? And I watched that at home a few days before we saw it in theaters, and it looked horrific. <laughs> the quality was freaking terrible mm-hmm. for VHS, but... I don't recall. There's a part of me that thinks maybe, but that did maybe... it have tra- did it have like credits on it and everything or no? It did. It had okay. everything because because the movie was out in theaters at this point. Okay, I didn't know if it was like one the Mortal three... Kombat one was a pre-release. Like right. I got it like a week or so before it came out. The reason why I ask is because like because we saw the work prints of Halloween, uh, the Rob Zombie's Halloween before it came out. And I like saw that like okay, and they did, like they had working titles and everything, and a very different edit of the how that movie opens. So it ends. I can't say I don't recall. I just know we had it. Okay. And so almost twenty years ago. Holy shit! Yeah, this is going to be twenty years old next year. Wow. We're all going to die. <sighs> so um, I got to schedule my first colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how old I'm getting. Um. It's curious to see like how this movie has kind of become very derided over the years. But before we even get to that, I think we need to talk about how this movie came about. Because it was two years since the second one that they, they decided to green light Scream 3. With a budget of $40 million, way up from 15 from Scream from Scream and Scream 2's... 24. Yeah. And it was the initial treatment they went to Kevin Williamson, who was very busy at the time because he was... Starting, he was to direct his first feature film, uh, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, as well as I Know What You Did Last Summer was a huge hit, and he was starting his new TV series, one of them being Dawson's Creek. So needless to say, he was very busy at this point, so he only had like a 20 to 30 page draft written of it based upon his five page outline that he had at the end of Scream 1. Yep. And one that would like, it would, it would, the idea was that it was a fandom of the stab movies. Like, the idea is that it was going to be kind of, like, at one point, like, the ghost days kills a bunch of people in a room, and they all get up and clap and everything. And there's an alternate opening where Sydney is attacked by ghost days at one point at the very beginning, and she shoots him, only to find out it's a prank. That's one rumor of how the movie's going to open. And... And while this time here, Columbine happened. Yes, the uh, production of this movie, the brakes were slammed on as hard as possible because of the Columbine massacre in uh, Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Yeah. Which uh, everything was being looked at. You know, movies, video games, music. The inf- Because when shit like this happens, the first thing you do is always blame popular media. Right. You don't look at the people themselves, or the their environment, or, yeah. their background, their mental health. From, their mental health. You never fucking look at that shit. You always blame what's popular, you mm-hmm. know, and and of course it's not it's it's not escapism. It's really causing people. To, I'm not saying it never has. I'm not saying movies, video games, music has never influenced someone. But I think there's got to be something there already for it to begin growing from. Right. I mean, my argument is that like you think of how humanity is like humanity at this point right now is the tamest it's ever been. Yes, we do horrible things every single day because that's just that's just human nature. But 
you think of like back at the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or anything like that or the atrocities that happened in the first two world wars. If people are going to kill, they're going to find an excuse no matter what. It is. They're going to find something to influence them. Which I, you, if somebody wanted to be really critical of the series, you can go back to the line that Billy says at the end of Scream 1 is that movies don't create psychos. Movies, movies make, make psychos writers more creative. creative. Which I always find that is a very strange line there. Like I don't know if, he, if where the movie's coming down with its idea right there. Well, I mean, the studio decided to go move forward with it, but they wanted, you know, a, more emphasis on the, uh, I, guess, I guess there is a degree of, you know, black humor in this. Oh, yeah. For, Dark humor, all, morbid humor. Yeah. Satiric humor. Through all three of them. They wanted way more of that and scale back on the violence. And it, even at one point, they wanted no blood or on-screen violence. But Wes Craven said, no, no, no. We're this If you're not going to have the, the violence, then call it something other than Scream. Yeah, there'd be no point to do it. And so a lot of it, like, and, and another thing I was talking about availability here is that we have Courtney Cox and David Arquette, I think, were signed on for all, like, three movies. Nev Campbell was not. And so they had to renegotiate a contract for her. But she was shooting uh, Drowning, uh, Drowning Mona at this time. She was also still, was she still on Party of Five? I think that, so. That end. I'm not sure when did that show ended. But so she only had 20 days of availability to shoot. This movie, so the central character of this movie is heavily produced story-wise. Now, here's why I don't have a problem with that. I think it goes really well with the idea that Sydney, after these two experiences, she has completely isolated herself from the world. Story-wise, it makes sense. We have seen it. We saw it in Scream 2, how she was pulling away from everybody, mm-hmm. how she wasn't letting everyone in. But then when it came to life again, it happened, and it you know took her friend's lives, her boyfriend, who totally was innocent in the end's life, she just decided to cut off all fucking contact. Right. And I understand why she would have a reduced role in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But by the end, she definitely does, you know, make a full comeback. At the same time, when she does come back, you know, towards the middle to end, yeah, we know that this killer is looking for her from the very start. So it's natural that the police are going to want to you know, hide her away. Mm. It kind of reminds me of the argument with Halloween 2 of how we kept our main character hospitalized and bedridden for most of the movie. Yeah, but at the same time, you have this other person who... I, I would say Dr. Loomis is heavily on par as, as a main character, maybe not the main character, I that he could handle the main load. character than Laurie in the second one. Well, that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. Dr. Loomis then takes over as the main character mm-hmm. out of the strength of him. Dewey and Gale have been here all along... They are very important, and now they take over because this is happening again, and they are directly involved with the police this time. Instead of just you know showing up and the police accept their help, the police look for them yeah. for their help, which we will you know elaborate on as we get into the plot, mm-hmm. and they kind of take that over. I'm right. fine with that. Yeah, I just feel change like, is okay, people. I just feel like everybody's screaming Dewey's name to save. That everybody wants him to save them throughout the course of the movie is a bit tiresome, Be- but. Since Kevin Williamson couldn't do a full draft of the movie and then uh, Dimension did not like his outline, they brought in a new writer, Aaron Kruger. No no relation. No to Freddy Kruger. <laughs> no relation or pun intended. But he would go on to write, I think, at least one or maybe a few of the Transformer movies later on. Really? Yeah. Shit. So if you want to have criticisms towards the writing of this movie, you might be able to understand why. But even Aaron Kruger says a lot of the scenes were written with Wes Craven, even though he did not take credit. And a lot of things, a lot of the ideas of like, because at one point Kruger had read the scripts that of 
the previous two movies and watched the two movies as well. And he came up with a draft and he pretty much turned Sydney into Linda Hamilton in T2, where she's like prepared for him. Very much like how Laurie Strode is in Halloween 2018, much to the chagrin of some people. Um, eh, she wasn't completely Sarah Connor. No. She, she was more crazy grandma who knows she ruined her life. Yeah. But knows how to use firearms. Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor is not unaware that she's ruined her son's life. Yeah, she, she, she's not. A, she's she's not objective in that fact. She, she knows she's doing the right thing. Right. She believes. The, believes she's she doing almost the right tries thing. to kill a man in front of his family. Yep. But so and even Craven's like, all right, we we can't turn Sid into that. So a lot of the stuff was written with Craven in mind, help kind of push these ideas forward. And so, is there any other pre-production stuff I'm missing right now before we get into it? Well. When Aaron Kruger came in, you know, the the uh, Columbine Massacre was a big thing. They decided to really move the setting away from Woodsboro to Hollywood itself, you know, believing the characters should be moving to bigger places from high school to college to, to the big city of Hollywood, you know? Which... But behind the scenes, it was really mandated, considering there was a film containing violent acts of murder in and around the small town of Woodsboro. Yeah. Much similar to the small town of uh, Littleton. Yeah. So, you know, they wanted to get they wanted to get it as far away from any relations, just even even in the slightest bit, just to just to get whatever negative criticism or, or links to that as far away from them as possible. Right. I mean, which makes sense. The only problem is that Woodsboro is kind of a small town and a college, and Windsor College it's a fake college, but it's a shot on a real college campus. That as an audience member, you can drop yourself in. Saying this movie in Hollywood does have a degree of separation for a large portion of the audience mm -hmm. because you can't really identify because you never lived in Hollywood, you never worked in Hollywood. And there's a lot of in jokes about movie making, especially in this one. There's movie making jokes throughout all three of them, but they're prevalent in this movie. Uh, well, also in the 2009 interview, Matthew, Matthew Lillard, who played Stu, said he was contacted to reprise his role in Scream 3 as the primary antagonist, you know, having survived his death, orchestrating new ghost face attacks from prison on high school students and targeting Sydney. But they decided to get to uh, avoid that, mostly because they didn't want some high school murderer, yeah. you know, being in this movie. That was a, one of the ideas that Kevin Williamson had as part of his Scream 3 um, script, and which he kind of later opted to use for his TV show The Following, The Kevin Bacon Show, which where there's a serial killer in prison and his followers are on the outside mm -hmm. perpetrating crimes in his fashion. And there's also a little bit that, that's kind of sprinkled in Scream 4, which we'll get to next time. But yes, I mean, just for pre-production, that's the bulk of it. You know, uh, principal photography began on July 6, 1999, went for about 12 weeks, ending in late September. Uh took place largely in areas of San Fernando Valley, MacArthur Park, Beverly Hills, Hollywood Hills, and Silver Lake. Uh, Sydney's house, though, since she's very isolated, they went out into uh, Topanga Canyon for her house, her yeah. very secluded house. Yeah, it's the end of, like, it was a, the end of a very long road, and it's very secluded specifically for for the purposes of that. But, and if I'm trying to think of Topanga Canyon, what the hell, like... I'm trying to think, was that like the La Bianca murders or the Tate murders of the Manson family? I think it happens in Topanga Canyon. Um, my true crime uh, knowledge is failing me right now. Yeah. <clears throat> but yes, you know, made in 12 weeks, budget of $40 million. Do you feel like it's a bit short, 12 weeks for... Truthfully, no, because as we've said, I am very satisfied with the, the end process. Like I said, it's not perfect. And there's gonna I be will a... point out plenty of mistakes, plenty of things I don't like. Right. Plenty of 
gaga, mm-hmm. but I do feel that the overall everything where we get at the end outweighs the uh, negatives. Like, there's nothing in the film that that just like sits there, like the the devil on my shoulder poking me in the neck with a pitchfork that I can't just ignore. Right. Nothing like that. And there is a lot of alternative stuff that we'll get to at the very end. Yes. But the movie opens up. And with the Hollywood sign showing, like, how different this movie's going to be with we're going to be set in Hollywood, California. And, of course, it's, it's not a Hollywood, California movie if we don't have a traffic jam. Well, this opening was filmed in Hollywood Boulevard, and due to reshoots, they were, had trouble uh, securing it again. Yeah. Like, so, this is, like, this is, like, I think right now he, the con's on the 101 right here. I, I believe so. I think, so. like, the initial chase goes down Hollywood Boulevard, and they had to splice the rest of the movie in together. But... Right now we have with Khan opening up here. We've got we've got the helicopter Arnie Pie in the sky from The Simpsons <laughs> telling you about a big traffic jam, which uh, stuck in it is good old Cotton Weary. Now here's the thing: Ret- Leave Schreiber returning from Screams One and Two. Now we've seen two movies at this point here where we have an opening. Well, the first characters we see, we know they're gonna die. Did you know that Cotton was gonna die here? I don't know. Maybe there was a part of me that had a very subconscious feeling that he was going to die. Yeah. Because I, I didn't think of it the same way you did. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of just go into it and just roll with whatever happens. Right. I might have thought that to myself based on this whole opening setup. At the same time, I think to myself, mm, Cotton, he's kind of he's kind of important. A big deal. Yeah. I wouldn't say important, but a big deal to the Scream series. Um, Cotton has gone on in the you know following years. Again, we're Tim and I are still not a hundred percent sure of the chronology of this. Mm. It's has been made pretty unclear. I'm still going with the the opinion that each one takes place the year it was released. Right. If, if that's the only way you can make the math, I'd say that's expounded upon at the end of the movie. Work. Yes. Uh, so I'm assuming this took place in 2000. Scream Two is 1997. So I am under the under the opinion that this took place three years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, Cotton has gone on his, his fame from the ending of Scream 2, being the hero. He's gone on to host his own TV talk show. 100% Cotton. Yeah. Which... I, I, I bet you it took exactly a microsecond to fucking come up with that title. I would have come up with that title. You would have come up with it, but, but, but you would have done it as a pun. Someone actually seriously thought of this as a title. My puns are serious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so that laughter is really crying inside. <laughs> what? No. Have you ever seen a Simpsons episode when uh, I forget which one it was, but when when Krusty's like bouncing between emotions, laughter and sadness? Is that when his father uh, comes into the picture right there, the rabbi? I, I don't know exactly, but I just remember like ah. <laughs> 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 Is that how it looked to you right there? That's kind of that's kind of what it was for that. Okay. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and so Cotton Weary <sighs> is. That's why I do it when Tim makes a pun. <laughs> <laughs> he's not lying. When Cotton is arguing about the fact that he's got this cameo in uh, Stab Three, and he's not really happy about it. Yep, they're making a Stab Three. Apparently, they made a Stab Two based on the Windsor College murders of Scream Two. Right now, they're making a Stab Three, a completely original picture. Return to Woodsboro. Return to Woodsboro. World. That was the subtitle of it. I guess you could kind of look at it as a Stab 3 is almost what Scream 3 would have been had they gone with the original Woodsboro setting. Right, because once kind the of idea, just dawned on me. Once I realized, like, one of the things I read about is that the fact that once they changed the locale from Woodsboro to Hollywood, um, Craven still wanted a scene with 
like the stab movies to take place at Woodsboro. So that's why he wanted to tie it all back. Yeah, and so that's why the sets were built to replicate the the scenes for the locations from the first Scream movie, even though there's no no pages written. So he paid that out of pocket to build yes. those, those and had sets. them inserted in. For, Wes Craven had it, it, when we get to the production studio of Stab Three within the movie Scream Three. There are replicated sets of Sydney's house, Stu's house, mm-hmm. like many locations, and, and really done well. I haven't, you know, compared them side by side, mm-hmm. but they recreate a couple shots, even. Yeah, and like it's they, it's they very convincing, very, very in a very similar fashion. But while Con is arguing about this, he he's gets, arguing with his agent, I believe. Yeah, he on the cell phone. He gets his second cell phone rings. He's he's on the his car phone. His I think. car phone, and then um, he gets a call from. A mysterious woman here. Uh, believing they have the wrong number, but mm. she recognizes his voice, and she's kind of almost like turned on by it. And then when she finds out that it really is him, right, you know, like, really oh my God, I'm all starstruck. So he decides, you know, I, I guess he just decides to put the kibosh on talking to his agent for the night because he seemed pretty pissed off. Yeah. And instead he just chooses to continue taking this call. Right. But it doesn't take long until it goes a little off the rails because it goes from flirting to... Saying, like, I know that you have a girlfriend. And it's like, what makes you think I have a girlfriend? Because I'm standing outside her door right now. And that's when the voice immediately changes to uh, Mr. Roger L. Jackson, who has returned as Ghostface. Now, then we cut to the footage of Christine Cotton's girlfriend in the shower here. Now. In that first person, Michael Myers perspective. Yeah, point of view shot. Now, how does Scream 2 open? Uh, In the movie theater with um, Maureen... Evans and, and and whatever. Phil Stevens? Omar, oh, yes. Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett. And what are they watching? They're watching Stab. Right. And how does that movie open? How does Stab open? It opens with a recreation of Casey Becker's murder, except she took a shower. And you know how... And like, left people, popcorn on the fucking oven while taking a shower. And you know how, like, people thought it was, like, schlocky and stupid, that, and we even made fun of the fact that, like, we have a slash movie open up with somebody in the shower? Oh, now we have someone's slash movie open up in the shower. It just goes to show you the quality of writing between Scream 3 and Scream 3 is like it, it just shows that Aaron Kruger did not understand the series from the jump. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, and like, and, I, and I, there were multiple, multiple times in the rewatch we did here before we, started, uh, before we started recording here that I just verbally had this side and disgusted. Like, I'm like, don't like. No, like I couldn't articulate myself, like how frustrated I was here. And then this is when the person on the phone with Cotton says, "Like, hey, he wants I'll, to play a little game. Yeah, just tell me where Sidney Prescott is, and I will leave you two alone." And he just in Cotton's like, "No, you you touch her, and I will fucking kill you if you do that." Yep, he says, "You've got one chance, Cotton. You've got connections. You got one chance. Tell me where Sydney is, or or she dies." And Cotton, of course, being the fucking dumbass he is, he threatens. Yeah. Instead of, you know, telling the info. Mm-hmm. Would, he, would he even know? What does he get to loot? I don't know. Would he know? Would he Would he and Sid keep in, keep in contact? Probably not. He would probably say, hold on a sec, i got to look this up, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't think it's something he'd know off the top of his fucking head. Right, and so then Ghost, kind of goes speeding through. Ghostface oh, hangs up, yeah. try, desperately trying to call Christine, but she's not picking up. Yeah, because we find out the phone line's cut, and he goes barreling down in his SUV downtown Hollywood. Yep, he Cotton is driving erratically. I'm surprised he passed no cops on the way. Surprisingly. And, Christine, and we, played by Kelly Rutherford, is... Uh, oh, go- I remember she was gorgeous in this fucking movie. Yes, yeah, so, and, and, and it makes sense. Like, 
as like a studio said, like they want her to be scantily clad in this movie to mm-hmm. to play towards the audience here. And the phone lines were all busy at the police department, which is not a good sign. Yeah, Cotton can't get in touch with anyone, so he's he's driving on the wrong fucking side of the road, even. Like, yeah. And so Christine is like, it seems to be getting ready, like, as for, I don't know, for dinner or for bed or something like that. And that's when she's interrupted by the scariest sound of all. The Creed. sound of Creed playing in the background. What if I'm now under my rock? I think my brain is bleeding from <laughs> Tim's impression. If Creed wasn't bad enough, Tim's singing Creed is worse. That will be your eulogy at your funeral, me singing Creed. But yes, uh, Creed was a heavy part of this soundtrack, heavily marketed. Even there's a music video of this. The, the full with- music video for the song What If. Um, there's a poster in you know the recreation of Sydney's fucking bedroom. Even though she, it wasn't there in the first one. Even though it wasn't there in the first one. You know, it's product placement out the fucking ass. But uh, Christine is you know spooked as hell right now walking around her house. She gets around to the front door, hears the sound of it open. And we hear Cotton's voice. And we're like, oh, I guess he got home. Yep, he's all concerned. Everything seems to be cool. Yep, everything seems to be cool. But everything, as we as it turns out, is not all right because out pops Ghostface. Yeah, and you're like, wait, how did Ghostface do that? How did he talk like Cotton and everything? And he gives chase to Christine, who locks herself into Cotton's office here. Yep. And we still hear Cotton's voice on the other side of the door. So he's, wait, is Cotton a killer? He, he's apologizing. He's like, oh, sorry, you know, it's, it's part of the game. You know, I want to take the game to the next level. And she's like, and like her is speaking for the audience. like, what kind of game? And it's like, oh, it's the game that I rip your insides out. Now open the fucking door christine yeah like he's stabbing through the freaking the door but to uh, the audience's confusion cotton pulls up right and i love the exterior for the apartment here it's called the harper house Mm -hmm. and i recently just saw it in um last boy scout it's it's halle berry's apartment in that movie and i'm like holy shit like i know that that's that's the cotton's apartment now this this we will talk about deleted scenes at the end but this opening was reshot several times. Yeah, there are multiple iterations of how the opening of this movie plays out. And for and eventually they weren't able to get this house anymore, so they had to recreate it as a set. Yeah. And now, I, I don't think it looks that bad. I don't think like I, if you didn't know that, would you question? Would you? I was just about to say no. Yeah. Not at all. I wouldn't. I would not have fucking believed it. Right. But as Cotton's inspecting the house, ironically, his show is playing. And it's a clip about. Road rage and crazy drivers. Uh, dramatic irony, right? Oh, there. Yeah. And I think on the commentary track, uh, Wes Craven says like this is like the first time they use green screening on a TV to like digitally insert uh, video footage playing back, and so, um, and then this is when we, we find out that Khan's not brandishing a samurai sword, but a fire poker. Yep, fire poker. He takes his jacket off, which. Uh did he do that? And well, we'll talk about it at the end with the deleted yeah. scenes. But he gets to the office door, sees the the uh, stab marks through it, and hears uh, shuffling going on inside. So he ends up deciding to kick in the door, uh, and, rush but, the door. <laughs> and but Christine thinks Cotton's a killer because he just heard uh, his voice and everything. She's got one of his golf clubs, and like she's swinging for the fences here, and he's just trying to. He's confused as all hell, just like. Just like I'm just like, please, just give me the golf club here, and that's when Ghostface pops up behind her as they rotate around he, the room. He slowly, out of focus in the background, walks behind there, and Cotton, trying to reason with her, goes to, goes to like push her out of the way, but she takes a swing and knocks him out. Yeah. To which Ghostface comes up, stabs Christine from behind, killing her. Yep, one stab. That's all it needs. Yep, and a, it's right in the back. Well, and a fight ensues. Yeah. And Cotton, he seems to be doing well. He knocks a bookshelf over on him, goes right. to the golf club, but he gets kicked in the face and knocked over the table. Mm-hmm. At which point he gets fucking. Stabbed, mm-hmm. like like his his movie. Yeah, he gets stabbed. Yep, Cotton, and with Cotton's, you know, the last bit of his life, 
we see Ghostface hold up. Instead of having uh, the voice box in his mask, he has a new, more advanced one that he holds up in front of his mask. Yeah, I'm sure he got it from the 21st century, um, and uh, it's based on the same technology the Terminator is allowed to have to replicate people's voices. Knives and stabbing weapons, weapons, which um, he uses. Which apparently there was also uh, a kicking around idea of him, Ghostface, sitting in an office in full costume programming the voice box with the uh, computer. That was one of the ways that the movies get open too. I'm trying to think. Was it in Batman Arkham? Batman Arkham Knight or Origins, where you get the fucking voice print analyzer and you have to get uh, Arkham all these. Knight, because I like I just got that recently because I'm playing through that right now. Yes, you have to replicate people's voices. Yeah, like with Harley like... Quinn's voice is the first one you got to replicate. Yeah, so I, he's got Batman tech. Yeah, he, like literally, we had the killer. Ghostface is Bruce had, Wayne. Is oh, Bruce and there Wayne. is a character named Martha in this. Why did you say that name? <laughs> He just needs to hit someone over the head with a with a fucking sink, with a big fucking marble sink. Well, how the final fight plays out, Zoe? The fucking sink would not be surprising if that happened in there. Why the fuck not? They throw everything at each other in this movie <laughs> and literally stab each other. Um, and so Cotton is killed. Yep. And we He's, get the title card. Scream three. He says with his super voice box, "It was a simple game, Cotton. You should have played. Now, you know, you, you should tell me where Sydney is. Now, so, you, now you lose yep. and blam. Gets so we know face. That, we know that this killer is fucking out for blood when it comes for Sydney, big time." Time. You know, this isn't just uh, he like he's he's got a vendetta this time. Right, and the fact that not that ki- not that any of the other ones didn't, but and you kill off a fan favorite based on the second movie like that. You like as a one of the things that I also heard in the trailer is when Patrick Dempsey's talking to Sidney Prescott about um, trilogies. You say like, oh, we're going to get the third one. All bets are off, and it, it proves that in the very beginning of this movie. Well, in a, in a way, too, it did that in Scream Two with the killing of Randy. Yeah, very unpopular opinion. But at least that was the midpoint in the movie where you really it turns in that yeah. th- that one. And it's something. Speaking of like midpoints and everything like that, um, the first first and fourth screams were about a hundred and forty a uh, hundred and eleven minutes, like an hour and forty one minutes. Scream Two is about two hours. This is like an hour and like 57 minutes. This seems like to go by a lot faster this time. It doesn't feel its length. No. that's what I, I actually appreciate movies like that because right. any movie that feels long, clearly you're bored if a movie feels long. Right. I mean, there's a recent conversation that I just watched a video last night about Men in Black. Men in Black is 90 minutes long. You know, like, it's a blockbuster that's 90 minutes long. When was the last time you saw that? Yeah, it goes by in a flash. Yeah. And so we we cut to Northern California, presumably, where Sydney is in hiding with her golden retriever. Yep. And that she is heavily, like, kind of fortified her house here. Even she has, like, this old, like, wood, you know, fence with, like, the wide slats. It's like it's like the – how do you really describe it? It's, it's like the uh, – almost logs. Yes. Going into, like, through the sides. Mm-hmm. But it's she's got wired. she's got like a huge latch. She's got a motion detector on it, and you see a big wire going over the top of it, all around the perimeter of it. Right. Which could you know let you know or whatever. She always makes sure to set the alarm. Huh. Only Cece did that. Yep. Makes sure to always set the alarm. She's got multiple locks and everything. And she goes to work for the day. She works at home. She works for uh, California Women's Crisis Counseling. It's yeah, she's morbidly appropriate with- in a way. Yeah, and I love the fact that like one of the things on her office that she has a old color-coded Mac uh, computer right there. Oh, yeah, the original IMAX. The original IMAX. Yep, and she's got her uh, landline phone with the two office. She's got two uh, numbers hooked up to it, office and home. Right. We'll see. We will see that later. But she also doesn't even use her real name when she works. She calls herself Laura. 
It's a way to keep herself so Anonymous. separated and isolated from everybody else in the world. Yep, like e- even with her job, she doesn't fucking trust anyone. Right, which is called out upon later on. But we cut to actually shot in UCLA is uh, – Good old Gail Weathers. Giving a uh, kind of a assembly to – a motivational speech to uh, presumably journalist majors here. Yep. And, you know, they all give her a big round of applause. But one person sarcastically act, asks stuff about – her you know, methods. Saying, should you go out and cut people's throats because that's what you did? And she's like, metaphorically, well, yeah. He asked, was it worth it? <laughs> and, and the moderator is like, well, well, that's enough time for us, everybody. Yep. she's Gail is currently the uh, anchorwoman for Total Entertainment, mm-hmm. as will be revealed lately. After Dewey recovered from the events of Scream 2, because Dewey is still alive, she mm-hmm. went on, got a chance to host 60 Minutes 2. Right. Now, I don't remember 60 Minutes 2. I just remember 60 Minutes. I remember 60 Minutes 2. Yep. I remember that the 16 was so popular they needed its own second show. I don't remember if it was also on Sundays or it was a different night of the week, but I am pretty sure Mike Wallace was still on 60 Minutes 1. I do not know who the host was of 60 Minutes 2. But after the assembly, she's met Which, by- Sidebar, I remember whenever I think of like Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes, I think of uh, the, the shinning when Homer <laughs> keeps going into different rooms. Yeah. <laughs> You've I'm, got the shit in. I'm Mike Wells. Oh, this is more in 60 minutes. Let him in. Hi, David. Hi, Grandpa. Grandpa. Go. Go. <laughs> but anywho. Anyway, we cut to the outside of the, of the assembly because she's asked to speak with a police officer played by... Patrick Dempsey, yes, Mr. De- McDreamy himself. Detective Mark Kincaid, played by Patrick Dempsey, he informs her of the murder of Cotton yeah. and says that there was evidence left at the crime scene. It's a photograph of a young woman that Gail immediately identifies as a very young Maureen Prescott. Right. And even like the, the actress who plays Maureen Prescott that we've seen in photos um, throughout the series, these actually these publicity stills that we see throughout the movie are actually early ones from her modeling career. So I find that I, I like the consistency in that. Yes, actress Lynn McCree, who we have seen in most entirely, almost what in photographs? Yeah, and just like there would be in the background of shots of Sydney's house. Was life. there even any like home movie footage or anything? In it? No, no. And so then we we'll see her again later on in the movie. Yes, she now appears, you know, in the flesh, you know, in a manner of speaking in this movie and, you know, Choice of words. her voice as well. So she is more in this than anything else. But back at Sydney's house, Sydney is seeing on the news Literally report back at the ranch. Back at the ranch, <laughs> Sydney's seeing a news report about um Cotton's murders and just immediately you can see the look on her face like it's fucking starting again. Like she thought she could isolate herself from the world. But as it turns out, she looks like she's about to fucking break down. Too. Right. And, and apparently on the commentary, like, she's feeding her dog at that point, and she's got the bag of dog food in her hand. And apparently in an earlier cut, she drops the bag and it falls open, and her dog just comes in just munching down on all the food that's just, like, now on the floor now. Just, like, <laughs> have a little bit of a comedic moment in this kind of tense scene here. And you, this is a joke you made before we started recording here. It's like she almost, like, said her – if this is happening in chronological, like, year after year after year – you think Sydney would probably set her watch to an event that's going to be happening like this in her life. She's got, like, her fucking calendar ready, you know? She's probably, like, figured out mathematically the amount of time in her head, you know, that, like, okay, she has all the X's on the calendar of when the next one will strike. Right. But then, if this is happening three years later, you know, it doesn't ever actually fucking come. So yeah. she she dodges a bullet for one year and mm-hmm. the second year. And then on the third, oh, fuck. 
Yeah. You know? And it's the same thing I joke I said to you off mic is that, like, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it's Arrow Season 3 where they're trying to convince the police chief, like, hey, there's something, a threat coming to the city. He's like, oh, the city's under attack. It must be May because of what's the, the May. You have the big climactic season finale of that show. And then within Scream 3, we cut back to Sunrise Studios, Studios. which yep. is the fictitious studio that's been producing all the stab movies. In the universe of the Scream movies. Yep. Uh, the press is all around it, just like they were at the schools in the first ones, but security is incredibly tight, and it, they ain't letting anyone in. And uh, even, like, they had they, people, like, right, like literally security is, like, guarding every entrance possible here. And they were introduced to a collection of horror icons in this scene here. Because we have Roman uh, Bridger, the director of Stab 3, played by Seth Worley. Scott Foley. Scott Foley. Why did I say Seth Worley? <laughs> Seth Worley. <laughs> Seth Worley. Seth Worley. <laughs> I have no idea where that name came from. Seth yeah. Worley. I, I remember I get in trouble. Seth that's, fucking Worley. That's the name I'm going to give her. I ever get in trouble. That's that's my alias. Don't take it, anybody. Uh, <laughs> no, and, Scott Foley. I, I think he might have been married to Jennifer Garner at this point. Right. I think this was uh, either while they were married or just before. And in the scene, but before is, Batfleck got a hold of her, right? And also in the scene, we have Lance Henderson playing John Milton, the head of the studio. Obviously, Lance Henderson is a fucking legend. Now, the the shitty part is we're not fully we're not fully identified as to who Lance Henderson is. Right. We just hear him say, "I've been making movies for thirty years," because the the two of them are being interviewed by detectives talking about Cotton Weary's murder. Yeah. Police are all over the fucking place. But later in the movie, it comes up a point when they say the word, the name John Milton. We will get to that scene, and then there's like a music sting. There's like it's like a music sting of oh, oh like you're like what? And like the characters moment, like, the characters react at the exact same moment. And I remember in theaters going, who who what? And then when it finally got to that scene where where we get to him, it's like oh Lance Hendrickson. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I didn't mean, know that. You was could his have name. easily said like Roger Corman, who's also in the scene. Like he could have been John Milton for all we know. Like like uh, how piss poor this this sto- storytelling here. And more Roger Corman in my life, the better. I always love him showing up movies, especially like his like one or two scenes in Silence of the Lambs. And so we also have um, the Kincaid and his partner, uh, Detective uh, Wallace, played by uh, Josh. Uh, I forget his last name. Josh Pius. Pius. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I believe so. And he was the voice of Raphael in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Really? And he has a, a cameo as the guy in the back of the cab. What the heck was that? Huh? Giant tur- look like a giant turtle in a trench coat. You're going to LaGuardia, LaGuardia right? right? Yep. Uh, damn. Why didn't I think of that? Come back here. I'm not finishing you yet! Damn! <laughs> I'm sorry for listening to that. It was too loud for you. Um, but yes, possibly- Did we make a Ninja Turtles joke while we were watching this? With Kelly Rutherford with the fucking golf club? Yes, we were! I'll never call golf a dull game again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love the... He probably has my favorite line in the movie. His first line here when he comes on, like... Because John Milton says to the detectives, like, Hey, you don't think Con's death has anything to do with this movie, do you? And he, he dryly responds, He was making a movie called Stabbed. He was stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like how the dry and the delivery I really enjoy. But then we meet. We meet the f- cast of Stab 3, basically. Yes. We have um, Angelina Tyler, played by Emily Mortimer, as the role of Sydney. She won a contest, apparently, to get this, because 
Tori Spelling. One, in quotations. One, in quotations, which everyone believes is under dubious circumstances because of what a goody two-shoes she is. Right. Uh, apparently, according to her, David Schwimmer and Tori Spelling refused to come back. Right. Which would be kind of curious if, like, if Tori Spelling actually was in this movie, though. That would be interesting. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, Matt Kesselar. Kesselar? Kieslar. Kieslar, I think. Kieslar. I think so. Uh, as the role of playing Tom Prince, who plays Dewey in Stab 3. Yeah, this is going to get real confusing real fast. Yeah, well, that's the thing. All you, all you need to know is just the, the characters' names, truthfully. Yeah. Uh, but we also have two original characters. We got Jenny McCarthy as Sarah Darling, who is original for Stab 3. Right. And we have... Dion Richmond as Tyson Fox, who is another original character for Step 3. Which people kind of point out the fact that he's named Ricky and works at the video store. He's got to be a Randy Stanton in this movie because in Step 2, Randy was killed off like how Randy was killed in Scream 2. Well, it's funny, too, because uh, as they're talking, you know, Tom says, uh, what if Sydney's the killer? You know, living in the woods, living in, like the Unabomber. And, right. And everyone's worried that they're going to get killed. And, and uh, Sarah says, like, guys, you know, this was about cotton. We're not in any danger. And and uh, Tyson even reads in the script, we are not in any danger. Says, says her character at page Says 15. Candy, you know? <laughs> yeah, because of course Jane McCarthy doesn't think we're in any danger whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, well, she... she uh, <laughs> should, I, should I... Should we go there? Should we make vaccination I, jokes? I think they're like... Jokes? Of course we can, because it's like making fun of Canadians at this point. It's become so ubiquitous at this point. Yeah. Uh, We're not in any danger. We didn't get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> so Gail decides to sneak into the side of the uh, studio, the side entrance, because they're keeping press out. Yeah, and she's wearing like the opposite closest to her original one in Scream 1 here, because she's wearing a yellow banana suit like like she is April Like April O'Neil. Oh, my God. We're, have, we're finding more Ninja Turtle references in this movie unintentionally. But speaking of outfits from Scream 1, we have Gail Weathers, played by Parker Posey, played by who also plays Jennifer in this movie. Yes. Uh, we have uh, Parker Posey playing the character of Jennifer Jolie, as she is credited. She plays Gail Weathers in Stab 3. Mm. And she's like this, you know, dressed up just like her, the spitting image. She's got like the lime green fucking bubblegum bi- uh, business suit. And she got the hair. She's got her hair done the exact same way here. And she's she's the only one in the carryover that's played Gail in all three movies at this point. Yes, and she's apparently a super fan. She's called her called her multiple times, much to the chagrin <laughs> of Gail, who doesn't have doesn't want to have anything to do with her here. Yep, uh, she's pursued by her bodyguard, uh, Steve Stone. Stephen Stone, played by Patrick Warburton. Which I was reading the IMDb trivia here. They like like one of the ideas was they want Stone Cold Steve Austin to play. Stephen Stone. I don't know how real I, that is. I would not want to have seen Steve Austin get killed. <sighs> I'm over a kid with my stuff! He just gives a stunner to the fucking uh, the <laughs> ghost face. Ghost face. Nice and pours, back and all. Pours beer on him. <laughs> one killer. What? Two killers. What? Stop mud holding your eyes, drink some beers. <laughs> <laughs> but we had the introduction, reintroduction of Dewey Riley. Well, b- played before by that, Parker. I gotta say, Parker Posey, as you said while we were watching this, steals the show in this movie. Yo, she she is the star of this movie. Her uh, her and uh, Courtney Cox have amazing chemistry in this. Oh, their, their their hatred of one another, but they have to work together, and they start almost thinking alike. Yes, their constant bickering throughout is the. Highlight for me, it's the one of the biggest reasons why, I, if I want to watch this movie, it's because of their dynamic. Oh, yes. So as they're walking through, they run into a very familiar face. It's Dewey. With both functioning arms. No, his other arm kind of, you could see it during the movie. It didn't, 
work right. Right, but he's not. He's, his limp is not as bad here. I presume surgery is corrected. That we find out or that physical therapy. That's true. And then he four how he's perfectly fine in the cop again. Mm-hmm. The sheriff. He's the sheriff of that town, and that. The reason why Dewey is here is because he's the technical advisor on this movie, but he actually does have a, an ulterior motive, which we'll get into later here. But since he's so close to Jennifer here, it's so weird because it's like he's had a romantic relationship with the real Gale, and having a, almost a pseudo-romantic re- relationship with the fake Gale, it's a little weird. Well, here are some of the issues I have, is that we're treading kind of the same place again, where it's like, uh, you know, Dewey and Gale split up after this, this other tragedy, and, you know, Dewey's mad at Gale for, yeah, for leaving him for whatever reason, Again. You know, just like in the just like in Scream 2. Yeah. Um, but Gale eventually is found out. She's spotted by John Milton there, who has her kicked out of the fucking studio. Yeah. And the only reason we know his name is Milton at this point is because we have somebody off a, screen. A security guard says, line. yes, Mr. Milton, 80 yard. Yeah. And so Gale's kicked out of this, this set here. And she started the exit just as a studio to- uh, studio tour for what patrons is going on. Mm-hmm. And among those patrons, <laughs> interestingly enough, is actually Jay and Silent Bob, Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith in fully in character. That's the problem. That's one of the biggest problems I have. If it was just Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes getting ready to play Jay and Silent Bob and they're both speaking, I wouldn't have a problem for it because Jay and Silent Bob are fictional characters. Like said in Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. Fictional characters, said by Ben Affleck. Having fictional characters in your movie that's supposed to be taking place, that movies have existed, breaks the, the, the concept of this universe. It's bullshit. But Jay and Silent Bob are canon- canonical characters in, in uh, the Scream series. Yeah, and, and I do in, in the fact... Scre- in the Scream cinematic universe. Because also... This is canon in the cinematic in, universe. In Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, we have Scream 4 being shot... And we have um, Sharon Doherty be attacked by Ghostface. We find out it is the chimpanzee from that um, they they were looking for the entire time. Mm-hmm. And it has my one well, of my favorite line deliveries from Wes Craven. I'll talk about his other cameo here in Scream Three. Is that Sharon Doherty goes to complain to Wes? He's like, "Look, a monkey. This is getting ridiculous. Hey, people, people really love uh, the testimonies. Is love orangutans? James about come in and steal um, the orangutan and Jay." Screams as they're running out. We love this monkey, and he runs out. And it cuts back to West Craven and says, "See, he does." <laughs> but anyway, they look at uh, as Gail goes away, as she's walking away. Jay looks at Silent Bob and says, "Holy shit, Silent Bob! It's a TV fucking news reporter, Connie fucking Chung. Hey, Connie, how's Maury?" And she just flips him off and walks away. In the background, you see um, West Craven as a video camera uh, studio patron right there <laughs> on the tour. And I think uh, I think maybe Peter Deming's also in there with them, the uh, cinematographer. Of this I think he's amongst there. I think he's eating popcorn, much okay. like he used the popcorn attendee in Stream Two. Okay, but anywho, back at Sid's house, uh, her father's come to visit, uh, played by the same actor from uh, I forget his name. Yeah, so do from I. Stream One. And so they they're having the conversation here where he's worried of the fact that she's isolating herself so much, and the fact that Cotton is going on here. I don't know if like he always brings her. Groceries? Groceries, or it was just like, hey, I this gives me a reason to come see you and talk to me. Like, hey, you, you're not doing you're not doing good things to your mental health here. That people like the only people you talk to don't even know your real name. 
You know, it's saying this as if you don't exist. And she, she says, you know, it's the idea. Psychos can't kill what they can't find. Right. And that that's how she – she looks like she's trying to convince herself that. She's like – even as she knows that this charade is not going to last forever. It's a it's a bad idea. Right. But at the same time, you know, you – kind you of understand it. You, it's not like – it's completely ludicrous at this point here. Well, anywho, after her father leaves, you know, she's taking a nap on the couch and – Probably one of the fucking creepiest scenes in the whole movie. I think happens. this is the creepiest scene. In the movie. I, I agree with you completely. The only other scene, like because we we see the photograph of Sydney and her mother that we see in all three movies, but never has it looked so scary as it slowly pushes in on Maureen's face as we cut outside Sid's house and we see a ghostly uh, version of uh, Maureen, Maureen Prescott walking, walking through and observing the entire area, and, and everything seems to be kind of creepy here. And then well, as she gets closer, she looks at the, up at the camera. She looks. Right down the barrel of the lens, and that's like when, where the music's staying, you're like, oh god, that's creepy. That's when Sid fucking awakes, looks at the window, and they're standing at the window. Where the the camera is zoomed out, and she's just looking in from outside the window, and it's just it's, it's fucking unnerving. chilling. It is so unnerving here. This is like the only other scene that I find truly terrifying. In this movie also involves Maureen Prescott. Yeah, and so she's like. Sid, like, you're poison. That's what you are here. Just like me. Everything you touch dies. And she's, like, clawing at, like, the window, and there's, like, blood all over her fingers as if she crawled out of a fucking coffin. Like, clawed her way through it. Like, fucking Jason Todd in, uh, in, uh, what the hell was it? Death in the Family. Well, his, his, the story, the story of how he, uh, came back to life. Under the Red Hood. Yeah. Well, whatever issue that was. Yeah, I forget. I was that detective for Batman. I think it was a, a special issue. Right. I think it was, yeah, I think it was a miniseries there. Oh, sidebar right there. I was, I, I have the big giant volumes of um, Nightfall in the middle. I'm, I'm on the third one right now. But I realized, like, we don't find out anything the recuperation of uh, Bruce Wayne at this point. And I looked at the individual, um, like, the smaller trades of it while I was at the comic book store earlier today. And one of them has, it's just Bruce Wayne at the point of, um, like, it's the other half of Night Quest. Yeah, I'm really? just like, and I'm like, God damn it! I wish I, I, I really contemplated to read that because I'm in the middle, of, the middle of the Nightfall. Um, the that I'm reading right now, it's like he's training with um, Lady Shiva to get back his strength and everything. Really, that's not on there. No, uh, not in the big trade, not in the gigantic trade. Like even like the giant, I, I have the fucking you have the thinner ones, don't you? I have the smaller one of Night's End. I have the, the original two trades from was, from like 1993. It's two Nightfall. for Nightfall, two for Nights. End or Night's Quest, and then two for Night's End. Well, I, I don't think originally they released Night Quest. Really? I think that the one you have is the first like release of Night Quest. Mm. But I know when they finally released Night's End, I think that... No, I have the second printing of Night's End from late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Because that was part of a three-part re-release of the first two parts of Nightfall. Okay. And that one didn't contain Prodigal. Prodigal was released on its own, went out of print, and now the newest one has that you have has Prodigal. Has Prodigal, yeah. Because I remember they released the first two Nightfalls as one. Mm-hmm. They did this around Dark Knight Rises. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, Scream 3, like, Sydney approaches the window to see what's going on, and that's when Ghostface pops up and punches his way through the window. Because her mother, as she was crawling, crawled beneath the view of the window, and, and Sydney went to and check. And if you listen real closely and you turn in subtitles, you hear her mumbling, look what they did to me, Sid. Huh. Yeah. And it's her crying and seeing, and I guess it's like a, a memory of what happened to her when she was in Hollywood right there. It's like, it's plain to see it's for what plays out later on. We didn't get to the Hollywood part yet. Yeah. 
I know. We'll, we'll, we'll it, get to that. Yeah. Anyway, Sid gets close to the window, and Ghostface pops up, breaks through the window, and she goes flying back onto the couch. Realizing it's just a dream. Realizing it was just a dream. She never actually got off the couch. She, mm-hmm. she uh, woke up. Who who would have thunk that Wes Craven like, had a fake out with us with a, a uh, dream that scared us? Yeah. <laughs> and so we return to Sunrise Studios where Jenny McCarthy is here on the weekend, we find out later on. In Not a- to get vaccinated. <laughs> and... She's supposed to meet uh, Roman, the director, to go over some scenes with him. Yes, Roman has contacted her to do a uh, another reading. The studio's freaking empty, though, except Tyson and one of the special effects guys are there uh, doing some makeup tests. But other than that, everyone's left. It looks like they're about to leave. Security's locking up. Mm-hmm. She's in his office looking at his music video award when she's startled. And By the phone call, and she drops him, cracks the, the head off of yeah, it. Yeah, the fucking head of the little statue comes off. And so she tries to repair it by putting the head back on with scotch <laughs> tape. A piece of scotch tape. What, what the is this, fuck? Dumb and Dumber, trying to put the, the bird's head back on the body? I'd go to the SFX studio you just walk past, look for some fucking industrial glue. Or get them to repair it. I'm get sure they'd fix it. I'm sure they'd be able to whip that up really fast if they needed to. Yeah. And so the conversation goes on as they decide to read through the scenes here. Roman and, tells her he's going to be late. Yeah. And the fact that like she's just like, why am I even doing this? I'm candy. I I am only I die second. I'm only in two scenes. Why am I even bother doing this? My boyfriend just died. Why am I in the shower? You right. Know? And she's like, this whole shower scene is played off. Vertigo. Hello. It, yeah. Which means like uh, it's, it's psycho. That's the Alfred Hitchcock movie with the shower the shower scene in there. But, but also yeah. when she says that, it does remind me back to I know I've referenced this before the fucking Beavis and Butthead episode when they go to the drive-in. Yes. And they're watching the horror movie. Oh, all my sorority sisters are like naked and decapitated. I know. I'll take a shower. <laughs> and it's obviously like they're in on, in on the joke here, but like they're going through the lines of the script here, and then Roman says like it. You know my favorite name is it's Sarah, and Sarah Darling says like that's not the, in the line. Script. Like well, it's in my script, and she's like, "Is there been another fucking rewrite? How are we supposed to read our li- know our lines every when the new change is every fifteen minutes?" I feel like a lot of this is also um, a little bit of a nod to you know production woes that Scream's had over the years. Yeah, especially in this one because there were pages, new pages done every single day because of changing things that was going on. Like so much so that. Scenes uh, were shot multiple ways, and they were kind of Frankenstein together in the editing, which is a, which is not a good way to make a movie or anything. But it, it happens sometimes, especially in big budget movies, and so much so that like three different endings were kind of proposed. That, like the cast didn't know how the movie was going to end. Like Patrick Dempsey was in like maybe in one ending, and he was not in another, and everything. It's like it's crazy at this point here, but. Sarah starts to get creeped out because the, Roma's voice changes in the killer's voice. Yep, and he says his, it's in my new movie. It's called Sarah Gets Skewered Like a Fucking Pig. And she, frightened, picks up her purse, goes to leave. She goes to the exit door but sees someone in the – it's a big glass door. But sees, sees a shadow approaching. Yeah. So she hides herself in one of, like, the special effects rooms and prop rooms where there's a, there's two full clothing racks of ghost – actually, three full – clothing racks of, of uh, ghost face costumes. Mm. Um, she tries calling security for help, but it turns out... It was a security guard. That's, that's, who, coming that's in. who was out there, one of the security guards. So he, he shuts the whole place yeah, down. Yeah, he's going to lock it up. Nobody's there. And as she's on the phone trying to get there, we see 
a very close-up shot of the costumes hanging on the uh, clothing rack, and one of them leans out. That's another shot that I remember from the trailer. Uh, yep. And I was always like, whoa, there's multiple Ghostface in one frame and everything. So he attacks. They're in the prop room. Every prop she picks up is, is phony when she goes to hit him with it. Yeah, especially when she uses a machete that like literally just stops his hand. <laughs> it just bends around it. Yeah. It, con- it contours his arm perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, she goes for a fake axe. I love how he just gives her a haymaker. And she sends her head flying through a glass door and then stabs her. Yep, and Sarah is the second victim. She's or third. Third victim. That's right. You made, you made that nitpicky point. because no, because the, the movie realizes, forgets the fact that Christine Kahn's uh, girlfriend is forgotten in this movie. Yeah, she was in it for two minutes. She's a, okay. All right, Sarah's the second person of this Dab 3 production to be killed. Thank you. And then we cut to uh, Sydney and Ga- – uh, not Sydney uh, – Gail and Dewey having a conversation here. And they were arguing about, like, their relationship yet again. Once again, saying how, you know, she stayed with Dewey until he got well, but she could not stand to be in fucking Woodsboro. Is it's it, driving her nuts. Is it a little – like, I understand it's supposed to be like a lot of exposition to see where they are relationship-wise at this point here. Is the argument itself kind of redundant here? I'd say yes because it is just more of the same. I mean, I understand it. We understand Gail by this point. She is a fucking career woman, mm-hmm. and if you don't offer her something that's going to help with her career, she's not going to stick around. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, she she decided to leave because she got offered 60 minutes, too. And she's, like, she's climbing the um, entertainment ladder there, so that's why she did that. But the real reason why this, came, this meeting happened is because somebody, a woman called the Woodsboro PD, find, trying to find... Information about Sidney Prescott. Well, she's got to needle it out of, out of uh, Dewey first, knowing that he knows something. Two, yeah, two months ago, a woman called saying she was with production to stand three and wanted to file on Sid for research. Mm-hmm. And the officer at the time said, no, I, I can't do that. So a month later... And she didn't give her name. Yeah. The file room gets broken into and ransacked. How ballsy it is to break into a police precinct to try and steal information. That's fucking something. Yeah. Especially uh, uh, as we will find out at the ending of who the uh, killer is. It's some. That's kind of something. For... Yeah. And, and I presume that had to be done at night, and that's the only way. Really, like when there's very few, probably few officers. Surveillance around. cameras. I guess they had to be in. Uh, had to be costumed. We were playing fucking Splinter Cell games earlier, and I, even I was having trouble, you know, getting by security cameras and shit. Well, yeah, but then again, you're going into very high stakes environments and everything, where like there. Yes, I was going into like buildings and whatnot. Run by very serious bad guys. It's just a small town uh, police department. Not in, first, had... not in the first level. Not true. Um, but yeah, there should be surveillance cameras. But neither here nor there. And But by that point, Dewey had already removed the file. And the reason why he's here, the reason why he's part of the production is because he thinks somebody's trying to find Sid. The best way I can do is to be boots on the ground to keep an eye on everybody else on the production. Yes, Dewey believes that someone in the production is after. And... Remember that little part about a woman's voice, you know, calling. Mm-hmm. Because there's there's a little, one of the, another thing that the Scream franchise is always its biggest strength is keeping you guessing. Yes. Leaving enough red herrings, leaving you thinking, shit, it's probably that person. No, wait, it's probably that person. Oh, fuck, it's probably that person. I don't know who it is. It could be any of these people. I think, and this movie does that really well as well. And I will point out when we get to it. I think there's fewer red herrings here than there is in, like, Scream 1 and 2, though. Because we don't like, don't like know, the, the one, of the, like, one of the iconic things that happens in this franchise is like we see people wearing boots. That's like a big indicator that they could possibly be 
Well, yes, they, they, they dropped that one completely. Yeah. But there's other things, like, and I actually, I actually remember I failed to fucking mention the payoff of this in the Scream 2 podcast, but when we find out in Scream 2 that the killer's been filming all these things, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned earlier in the film, Mickey, in a lot of scenes, he has a fucking video camera with him. Mm-hmm. I forgot to mention that at the end. I think he did, um... I, I remember, forget, because I remember thinking about that after you left. Mm, Fuck, okay. I forgot to mention that. But... You know, that's, you don't succeed. Well, that's an example of moving away from the whole black boot thing. Because black boots, it's fucking incidental. You know how many people wear black boots every day? True. I'm glad that they moved away from that in this one. I, I, On one hand, I feel like, no, there aren't less red herrings. But at the same time, it's like, I don't the know if I... voice changer. Well, I don't know it. if I'd really be able to list... I don't know if I'd be really able to definitively say that without writing them down. So you may be right as well. Right. But the fact that, like, the voice changer... Throws a new dynamic in it is that literally anybody could be a killer. Oh, it throws a huge curveball. Yeah. You know? I mean, it may be a little far-fetched, but, you, you know, you roll with it. Right. Keep rolling, 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 rolling. rolling. It was 2000, so. Mm-hmm. That's why I made that joke. But anywho, Dewey gets a call from uh, from Jennifer, and he just throws money down on the table and leaves. Like, he, oh, my God, he's in such a rush to get back to her. Like, he could just throw in a fucking couple of singles that totally won't pay for this. Right. And so Jennifer's house is actually like a Runyon uh, Ranch. Um, in Hollywood Hills West, which like you can't actually get to this house by car. You have to like go by foot. It's a like it, I don't know how they got cars there in the first place. Like there's no like really accessible road like uh, to get car there. But they shot that inside uh, the house and outside. Like this is a real location here. But what we find out is that they've been informed of the death of uh, Sarah Darling. Yep, and uh, and. <laughs> And Jennifer, she's smoking. She's ranting and raving. The fact uh, that she hasn't had one of these in a year, somebody's going to pay for that. Stone is there. Gail followed Dewey. As soon as she walks in, she says, you, like I'm ever going to win an award playing you. Right. <laughs> and because Stone says there's been a second murder. Technically, there's been three murders, but whatever. But the biggest uh, significance to, to Sarah's murder is the fact that her character, Candy, is the second person killed in the movie. Cotton would have been the first one. Right. So he was seems, set to make a cameo. So since... It comes to the light that everybody's dying in the way they die in the movie. So Gail asks, who dies third? And that's when um, Jennifer says, you do. You do. That's why she's so freaked out. And she, I love that when she's so freaked that she literally leaps into the arms of Stone, who catches her, and like, like she's, she like weighs nothing to him at that point. Yep. So Dewey and Gail leave. Dewey has to get something from his trailer. He's been living outside of... Yeah, Jennifer's he's living home. on the property of her. And, and and Gail is offended by this, you know. But Dewey goes to get his gun. Mm-hmm. Dewey's got his gun. Dewey, Dewey, uh, Dewey's got his gun. Dewey's got a gun. Probably going to fall down a hill. Do, 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 do. And so uh, Dewey instructs Stone to keep an eye on the grounds here. And this is when Stone says, you know what? I'm the real professional here. You're the Hollywood uh This is when owner. Stone becomes more hateable than the killer. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Oh, yeah, not yet. No, he, true, he, you're right. Later on, he becomes, but, like, I think it's because the, the charisma of Patrick Walburn, I, I just kind of roll with it because I just enjoy him so much. But he basically runs down Dewey and says how, like, uh... You're no good as a cop anymore. Why yep. don't you take orders from me, all right? Yep. So, cut back to the studio. The crime scene is nice and fresh from Sarah's murder. Um, what the fuck was his partner's name? Wallace. Kincaid and, Kincaid and Wallace are there taking their notes, and a second picture of Maureen Pros- uh, young Maureen Prescott has been left. Yeah, and so they remark on the fact, like, hey, kind of like Hannibal Lecter or Seven, and his Wallace says, like, hey, doesn't the killer come out to the cops in those movies? And that shows that um, Kincaid is actually a bit of a movie buff himself. Right. And 
So, and Gail's there in the scene, and much to the chagrin of uh, Wallace there, and he does not like her being there, but, like, Kincaid's like, no, oh, I asked her to be here and everything. And Wallace is like, fine, I'll go, I'll just dust for Prince with Jane Pauly then. And we Dewey, Dewey and Gail and Kincaid are examining the photos and talking about how there are three different versions of the script to keep the ending off the internet. Similar to Scream 2. Yes. So we don't know which one the killer read. Yep. We don't know who the, the third potential victim could be. Yep. So back in the movie set, um, Roman, what is it, Roman Tyson and... Jennifer. Jennifer. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting everyone's fucking names. And Dewey are there. And apparently production has been shut down. Yeah, there's a second murder of the cast member specifically on the, the grounds of the studio. Then no way they're going to allow to do this. Yep, Roman is fucking despondent as hell, and he thinks he's next because he found his broken statue. Right. He's despondent because this is his big break, mm-hmm. and his idea is like he would have made a classic love story, and the studio said, yes, you just have to make a scary movie first, which mirrors Wes Craven's career. He wanted to make a very sentimental love story, but he got into horror because that was just more marketable at the time. Well, Nightmare on Elm Street was a love story. Freddy loves his children. Keeps them all in the boiler room. Mm. Especially how the original, he was not supposed to be a child murderer and that one. He was supposed to be a child molester. Yeah. Was, but I love how... That makes him more hateable. Fuck. The, the reason why they didn't do that is because there was a, there was a huge scandal of like... Um, Elementary school was implicated in molestation that came out like right before production began. So they changed it mid-production to make him a child murderer instead. And by the time the remake came out, they decided to go with the original idea that he was a child molester, and that's why. And then everyone game. pitched a fucking fit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anywho, Wallace and Kincaid show up because Sarah's roommate um, told them how she talked to him about meeting to discuss the script. And so Roman is taken into police custody for yep. questioning. He's here. denying it up and down, saying he never called anyone. Yeah. Uh, Kincaid goes to call in, you know, his uh, questioning to the precinct, but his battery's dead, so he borrows Dewey's phone real quick. And walks away. Hmm. Hmm. And, and Jennifer then- says, remind me not to sleep with him again, meaning Roman. So Jennifer has <sighs> slept with Roman. Yeah. So back at Sid's place, she's uh, she's on the phone doing her counseling. And she gets a call from uh, a, a woman with a familiar voice who's like in very fucking, despondent, right? He very saying, despondent and in tears, saying she's killed someone. And like Laura's like, uh, Sydney's like, um, are you sure? Uh, are you sure? Like, yes. And like, like you need to call the police, says Sydney. And but that's why he's like, no, I need to call you, Laura. Just you. And her vo- Sydney starts really recognizing her voices. Don't you want to know how you can help, Laura? And Sydney immediately sees that the call is coming from her home line. That's earlier they showed uh, when she when she signed into work. Yeah, she, she hit used, the office line right because she's got it labeled on her phone, and the one that's lit up is her home phone. So that call wasn't coming from the office; it was coming from her phone line. Yeah, and, so it very it, it plays on the idea of when a stranger calls, like yep. it's not coming; it's it's coming from inside the house, kind of thing. Yep. And the voice of her mother tells her to turn on the news, and that's where she sees the report that. Sarah has been killed. That well, that stab three has been shut down, and they shut down, hoping that the killings will stop. Immediately, the voice changes into Ghostface. Do you think for one second that the this is over? So Sydney, you know, gets off the phone, grabs her gun immediately. She has a, keeps a gun in her drawer, right? And she's f- frazzled and freaked the fuck out, as anybody would be at this yep. point. Looked around, and so then we cut back to Jennifer's house at nighttime. But at this point, as Stone is uh, examining the grounds here. He is inspecting the grounds, and they had the remainder of the cast is having a little bit of a rap party with with 
minus Tyson. He is not here. Yep, Tyson is not here. We got oh. Tom. We got Angelina. We got Jennifer. Tom's drunk off his ass and chain smoking and reading bits of the script and tearing them up as he reads them mockingly. Yeah. Dewey's there. You know, Angelina's kind of disgusted by his behavior. She decides to get up and walk out. Yeah, she leaves the party. And I love how Jennifer says to um, Tom here, like, um, like I, you asked her out, asked Angelina out, and you, she said no. Well, Is he's saying how, oh, the girly two-shoes. She probably stepped on every girl to win that contest. So right. you asked her out, and she said no? That's beside the point. Yeah, <laughs> so clearly he did. And there's a delayed scene which gets into that a little bit more. But, um... Gail arrives, and instead of going in immediately, she just, just decides to skulk around a little bit and eavesdrops on uh, Jennifer and Dewey talking about her behind yeah, her back. It's so weird because you're talking to, to an actress who's played your girlfriend while your girlfriend's there. It is a very weird kind of like, I, I want to say Freudian Only movie things. stars could have these problems. Yeah, and there's, there's going to be more Freudian things that going to be happening later on. Um, and so, because Gail wants to talk to... Dewey about the fact that like the phone scheme or clone cellular is untraceable and why is they leaving photos of Maureen at this time here? Well, Stone finds her snooping around and pulls her in. Yeah. So they go to talk and Gail says, you know, how Roman's been released and the calls didn't come from, you know, him. It was from a clone cell phone, untraceable. Looks at the picture of of uh, Maureen and is telling her is telling him about how she went to to research that period of her life and how there's nothing. So like she, she fell, fell, off the, fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. So Dewey looks at them, you know, confused, not really knowing. And he takes a look at one of the pictures. It's her standing in front of, like, these, these row of, like, you know, tall buildings. Two-story two buildings with uh, fire escapes on them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he gets he this idea. He recognizes them. And he, he pulls himself, Jennifer. And because he pulls up a policy still of Jennifer as Gail because we realize that the both... Photos were taken on the same location. They're a Sunrise Studios 30 years apart. Yes. So Maureen Prescott was at Sunrise Studios when she was 19, 20 years old in that missing part of her life. So you're like wondering, like, what the hell happened while she's there? But we cut to... Uh, Stone doing some more investigating. He going goes through into, Dewey's trailer. Going through his trailer and taking a spare change and being a fucking more of a fucking asshole because Dewey calls him and says he needs you to get back in the house because Dewey and Gail... You know, just just as we saw them before, we're about to get everybody together here. Get everybody together. I'd say leave yeah. to go tell Kincaid or whatever. So Stone decides to you know be a dick and make a make a dead sister joke about Tatum. Like, it's one thing to make those jokes in general. It's another thing to make those jokes to the person. Yeah, yeah. So. It's low to make it behind their back. It's low to f even lower to fucking say it to them. Yeah, and so because it turns out that he's not actually talking to it. It's actually the killer. Yep. Uh, Dewey, Dewey, I'm doing air quotes, says, I Great can't believe you said that. That, make me, that makes me, and then the ghost face pops out with his voice angry and stabs him. They and get into a scuffle. Which, if, if, this didn't, if this played any differently, I think Stone would have... Taking the killer. Well, he had to stab him in the back first because then he kicks him as, as Stone like has him. He kicks him away, and Stone hits back first onto the other side of the trailer, digging the knife in even further. And then well, what you said, the Ghostface takes a, a the Looney Tunes kill where he <laughs> takes a frying pan out and beats him over the head with it a couple yeah. times until he's out and, and leaves. I'm surprised we didn't see uh, little birds or or, or stars pop the up. Tweeting birds. <laughs> rabbit gets clunked. Uh, rabbit sees stars, stars, not birds. Stars. I'll give you stars. Look! 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 
Uh, you gotta drop it on me again. It won't hurt. I'm not worried about you, Bats. I'm worried about the refrigerator. So. <laughs> Roger Rabbit, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. Nobody gets to drop on Roger Rabbit. Back to Scream 3. Um... We Dewey return back to Dewey and Gale return to the living room of this house here, but no, everybody's gone. And a bit of a frantic, but they can't find anyone, and the uh, front door blows open. And the fa- the false jump scares come a rolling. Yep, the very first jump scare is Jennifer coming in from outside. Our second one is Tom coming in from somewhere, and Angelina's with him. And then they're like, "Oh, okay, we're all we're all fine. We're all together. All right, we're all good here. We're fine now. We're fine." How are you? Says we say to Stone. Stone stumbles out, and he is. They, they hear a commotion coming from the front door. Stone stumbles out, bleeding out of the mouth, very weak. And points to his phone, saying like they're trying to indicate that Dewey's the killer here. Points to his phone, points to Dewey before collapsing. Dewey. And Patrick Wolfman takes a hell of a face plant here on oh, the he cobblestone takes a, he takes here. A fucking tumble, man. He's like ow. Ric Flair, old man flop almost. <laughs> So they go run back inside where Dewey says, don't panic, and all of a sudden the lights go out and everyone panics. Yeah. So they run outside to the pool deck. They hear the sound of a phone ringing. So they all check their cell phones, but it's not them. Say, no, it's the fax. Which I did question the fact, like, how is the fax still going on if the power's out? Which? He could have just turned off the breakers that control the lights. Right. Now. Which means he would know a lot about this place. Hmm. Yes. Now. Yes. Now the question is. The fax goes off, and they get script pages that's describing the scene here. It's describing literally what's happening inside the house in, in like, movie script format. Now, how is the killer doing this? Uh, it's a portable fax machine or something? I don't know if those were a thing. I never had a fax machine, so I can't say. Well, I do remember in that one episode of Spider-Man the Animated Series, J. Jonah Jameson had a fax machine in his limo. Mysterio's first episode? Right, because he's trying to take revenge against J. Jonah. Yes. Um, yes, let's take our logic lessons from Spider-Man the Animated Series. Why not? A show that had, like, 40% reused footage. A reused animation. Okay, that might be a little much, but, like, 20%. It's not reused, it's efficient. Jesus, like, Hannah Barbera was not as efficient as that show. <laughs> like, Disney's reused animations in the 60s. <laughs> it was a tough time for Disney, okay? How Mowgli and, and uh, Arthur or Wart can wipe their face off when the dogs lick them in the same way. <laughs> and how Bear, uh, uh, Blue. Lady, Lady Cluck and Little John's dance maneuvers are exactly the same as fucking Baloo and King Louie. Exactly. <laughs> and so the script page is saying, like, the, the killer will, will grant... Um, the, who will survive? The killer will give mercy to, and then it, it cuts off. And they all decide to go right back outside, despite the fact that Jennifer wants to read the pages. And Gail says, read, wait for the fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Tom runs back in because he's got to know, like like a buffoon. And apparently the ambient light coming in from the, the pool not deck enough. is not bright enough. So he has to go in. He finds a, a Zippo lighter on the kitchen counter. Mm-hmm. He turns it on. And the page reads, whoever smells the gas. Now, okay. The house proceeds to blow up. In such a fashion, it rivals the bus in speed. How fucking yeah. big this thing is. You can see the fucking roof tiles fly off. Now, if that house was that combustible filled with that much gas, they would have known about that. Unless somehow he got it directly from the plant before they were able to put... Because, as I learned, I used to be a home heating tech briefly in my career. Natural gas does not have a smell. 
they add the smell to it. It is an element called mercapitin that is added, which gives it the smell. That's why miners would have the canary the down there, canary in there. Because if they hit a fucking natural gas patch, the canary would die, and they'd know, oh, fuck, we better get out of this mine. <gasps> out of the hole! Yes. The canary's fine! Back in the hole! Well, no, the, the, the Simpsons are referencing Dr. Hibbert, this canary died of natural causes. Everyone back in the hole! <laughs> so, okay... Which uh, I, I don't know if the killer has that good of connections to get natural gas directly from the fucking source. Yeah, it, it's another thing that's it, the logic of this is so problematic here. It's just like, oh god, and like how the explosion is so fucking big. I have problems. Like, if you're gonna have explosion that big, make that your finale. You do not have that as your midpoint of the movie. It, it, I mean, I had the same issue when Ben Tramer's killed in Halloween too. Then just like you better have a bigger explosion at the end because you need to escalate it at the end here. Uh, no. <laughs> what? I, I could get a Man of Steel argument going right now. <laughs> we already made fun of BVS If here. you're going to level the whole fucking city, why don't you wait until, like, the ending of this series or, or somewhere later? Yeah. As my lot the- of listeners like BVS and Man of Steel, let's move on before I piss them off. Okay. And so the rest of the people go tumbling over the side. The, they, the, the explosion, as you said, is huge, so they jump over the balcony because this is on top of a very tall... Yeah, it's on stilts. Yeah. And they go tumbling down a hill. And Chris Farley style and Black Sheep. Yes, it's not the fun rolling down a hill you do at the park. This is this is painful. Fucking, you're going to be covered in blood when it's done. Maybe break or dislocate something. But I love I love the ADR line of Parker Posey. I can't stop falling down the hill. <laughs> but anyway, they all get separated. Gail is at the bottom of the hill, right by a SUV. I pres- I think that's Dewey's SUV. Maybe I don't know. No, it can't be, because it would have to still be at the top of the hill. Yes, but anyway, Dewey, who's Slightly elevated, sees Ghostface come around from the. Behind he has the, the high ground. He has the high ground, so he so he starts opening fire, and he connects. He shoots Ghostface, knocks him down. Yeah, and the Ghostface takes the impact and rolls under the SUV. But Dewey, fucking, I guess the uh, kickback for his uh, his uh, crippled state was too much, and he goes rolling down the hill, much like when he went rolling down the the uh, lecture room in Scream Two. Right. Um, and so they're like, okay, let's 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 perforate this fool here, but he's gone. Yep. Huh. So he can take bullets. He can take bullets, and he's fast. And he's fucking fast. And they're like, okay, I guess we're fine here now. And they go and, like, Gail goes in to kiss Dewey here. Dewey and Gail have, they have their moment where they're falling in love again during the trauma. And, like, this is when Jennifer pops up, like, you were supposed to be protecting. Who, who, and who are you protecting here? And she slugs Dewey, and therefore, Gail gets to slug somebody. She is not the one to get slugged here. Yep. She's punches the shit out of Parker Posey in and one she says, hit. my lawyer like that. But then they all turn and they find Angelina, who is all the way, like, further down the road. And, and, and I love, like, Dewey says, like, how'd you end up all the way over there? Oh, my God, Tom was in the house. And that, Are we this, safe? And I love it. It's, this is 2000. I can make this over. Tom was in the house. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they turn around and they find another picture of Maureen Prescott. Make that joke for years, by the way. That's nice. <laughs> but on the back of it is written... I killed her. Yeah, and he, I is underlined. Yeah, he's literally emphasizing that this third photo of Maureen Prescott, that he's killed her. Yep. So back at the police station, they're discussing this with Kincaid, who is now fucking pissed off as all hell. And he wants to talk to Sydney. He wants to get Sydney involved in this. Yeah, and I, I love the point that here, like, if Maureen's husband couldn't tell you more about her, what makes you think her daughter could? Mm-hmm. And he, Kincaid is very pushy about this. Yeah, it's like, and it's like, like, what's your obsession, dude? What's your, what's your ma- ma- major malfunction, numbnuts? Like, oddly, you know? 
Yeah, it's meant to make him look suspicious, that's for sure here. And that's why Dewey does not want to do it. Dewey does not want to do it. And but this is what Wallace, Kincaid's partner, says, like, hey, last night you were almost charcoal. You want to just help us here or not? Dewey's acting like he doesn't know where Sydney is. Even and, to the point of total dumbass cluelessness. Right, and then like Kincaid says, like, do you want to take a polygraph to that? Is that a threat? When it's a threat, you'll know it's a threat. Is, is that, that a, a threat? threat? Says Dewey. And then this one, Gail says, like, you know what? Like, why don't you just, like, calm down? Everything will be fine here. And then Kincaid makes a final point here. Are you going to tell her? Are you going to find out? Are you going to call her or not? Yeah. Which he finally does. So Dewey's been trying to call her pretty much all night long. Called her, like, five times. And on the fifth one, as he, just as he's leaving a message, Sydney walks into the police station. And, like, wow. And, and like, this is the point here I can really tell of Sydney, uh, of Nev Campbell's wake here. Mm-hmm. Even though it took two hours to reply here, at this point it looks. This is the point that looks the most uh, um, noticeable. That's a wig here. Well, I mean, at the same time, look at look at the docile life she lives. You know. Yeah. I, I feel like it fits, and all the shit she's been through. I, I never felt like she was ever phoning a performance in. No, I don't think she's phoning a performance here. I just feel like the, just the wig applies that, that Nev Campbell has to wear is, is a little jarring to me. Yeah, and but so, Dewey even says, "I told you to stay hidden." So even Dewey had a little bit to do with that. And but she's like no like he called the killer called me if I'm if he knows I'm there I'm at least I'm safe here because I'm with people and so she's reunited with Gail who's a little awkward but they finally embrace but then yeah. she meets Kincaid who is very happy to see her and uh, Kincaid is shocked to hear that the killer called her and Sydney is even more freaking shocked to see all these photos but before that you know they talk about how could he have gotten a number like could anyone have you know used your phone and she's like yeah Jennifer and you Kincaid. Remember Kincaid earlier? Yeah, he borrowed the phone. And he's like, yep. hey, I'm the cop here and you're in my office. Don't throw accusations about that. That's not a denial there, sir. Yep. And at which point, you know, Sidney sees the pictures on, on his uh, cork board and, you know, says that they were all taken. They were all left at the scene of the crime. Many of these were taken place at the actual studio. And Dewey thinks that they were used as bait. And Sydney has no idea. She's never seen these pictures in her, in her life. Because she's, she's, she's known so little about her mother's true life at yeah. this point here. And there's just more evidence to the fact that. So then we end up back at the studio Sydney here. Sydney wants to see the actual locations. Yeah. And so they go to the studio and decide to look around Spelunk. The Scooby Gang literally goes to Hollywood here. They need a mystery machine right now. And they, the closest thing they have is Dewey's SUV, which, plot convenience, um... Randy had a sister, and she pops up here. Yeah, out from one of these uh, trailers pops fucking uh, Randy's sister, Martha. Yeah. Why did you say that name? And so it's like, okay, we never established that Randy never had a sister, so fine. But how did she get on the lot? It's lockdown, especially if the murders have been happening here. Yes. Now, why couldn't this have been like you know, mailed to, like, Dewey's fucking trailer or something. Something. Because what she's mailing is a VHS that says Scary Movies 101, and it turns out, how since we killed Jimmy Kennedy in the last movie, how are we going to get him back here? Yep. Uh, the idea was maybe we'll have something where he actually did survive, his family kept it a secret because they didn't want him getting killed. They wanted to keep him away from all these people that are involved in all this murder shit, you know? Well, but, since that's dumber than a bag of hammers, I'm glad they didn't decide to do that. Yeah, it's too implausible. But yeah. what we got was apparently Randy, during the events of Scream 2, filmed himself talking about what would happen if this killer actually did return. And if he didn't survive, what he could, what he could, you know, 
what information he could give to help. Right. Because if it's a, if it's another sequel, same rules apply. But if it's a trilogy, you got new rules. However, going back to what I was saying before, like how so many new things were kind of being shot and things were being made up as they go along. This three minute scene here with Jamie Kennedy, there's over two hours footage of him writing of new other dialogue and other rules that could possibly be used in this movie. Yep. And what so he, we get the trilogy rules. I'm sorry. What he establishes that if you find yourself with an unexplained backstory and a preponderance of expedition, then the sequel rules do not apply. Because you're not dealing with a sequel. You're dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. Much, and, like, everybody's just like, whoa. Like, and it's just, it is true because it's rare that you get a complete trilogy in a horror franchise. Usually it's just sequels that keep going on and on. Oh, yeah. Even in the fucking Hammer and Universal days, you get fucking sequels hoard out until it became unprofitable. I think, like, the closest thing to, like, a, could be a concluding chapter of a trilogy is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Because we know, we find out new things about Freddy Krueger's life. And if there was a sense of finality with the end of Nightmare Three. Oh, totally. And like, if the franchise never stopped it, like you could be complete with one, two, and three being a, a nice trilogy right there. I just kind of wish they would have brought Jesse back for number two. Like he could have been one of the kids, yeah, even though well, he's alluded to. Sort right, of. but like it's so weird because the ending of Nightmare Two is so similar to the end of Nightmare One, and yet yeah. Heather Landkamp is alive in Nightmare Three. So it makes you wonder, like. What is the endings of Nightmare 1 and 2? Like, are they real? Are they just dreams? Yada, yada, yada. And so the rules that we have to tri the trilogies here is that that we have a killer that's going to be superhuman, that stabbing him won't work, uh, shooting him won't work. The only way you can kill him is to cryogenically freeze his head, decapitate him, or blow him up. Yep. Oh, and then we have that anybody, including the main character, could die. And this means city. I mean, like it could be Reservoir Dogs at the end. And so any truth and also any truth that you have knowing about the past, forget it. Because the past is not rest. Because it, whatever sins in the past is going to come back and destroy you. Yep. The past will come back and bite you in the ass is what he says. Right. Any sins committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. So that's basically, you know, Randy's uh, Randy's final hurrah in the Scream series. Jamie yeah. Kennedy does not come back in any capacity for Scream 4. Nope. Which... Would have been kind of implausible at that point, you know? Yeah. But, like, there are Randy standards when we get to Scream 4. Oh, yeah, totally. And even, uh, well, I don't want to say anything further. I don't want to spoil Scream 4. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so after this, Martha, <laughs> she just leaves, you know? Thank you, Black Convenience. Th 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 played by Heather Matarazzo. Thank yeah. Thanks for stopping by, Heather. Yeah. I nice mean, you, you. you have a much more um, definitive role in Hostel 2. Like, Always well, lovely to see you, Heather. Yeah, of course. So Gail gets an idea and decides to split up. You know, the smart thing you do when there's a fucking killer on the loose. Especially since somebody, the killer has murdered somebody on the grounds of the studio. Yes. Um, Gail gets the idea to go to the uh, studio archives. But she's interrupted by Jennifer, who believes that because the killer is after Gail, that she's going... That she's going to stick with Gail because then the killer will really be after Gail and not her. It's very confusing. And even Gail says that. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And then, like, she's like, you trying to get into the archives? I'm like, yeah. So Gail was but find a way. And so Jennifer uses her key card to get her, them in there. Yep. As we go down to the bowels of the archives here, we run into a very familiar, familiar face. face. Who's in charge of the archives? We have uh, Carrie Fisher playing the, I guess, well, what would she be? The, re the secretary, receptionist, the ar um, ar archivist? Uh yeah, she's so she's like kind of like the one who runs the archive here down yes, here. Yes, she's in charge of maintaining it and everything. Um, apparently, she's not 
really Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. She's someone who looks very much like her. Looks just like her, and she even admits, "I was up for Princess Leia, but who gets it? The one that sleeps with George Lucas." Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, because like Carrie Fisher is like was known for years as one of the best script doctors, unsung script doctors in Hollywood. Um, apparently she rewrote a lot of her lines during the scene. I think it, it makes sense because there's so much biting sarcasm that, that Carrie Fisher just carried around through life. And but, I, I love the fact that she's just like, just like, just, just had, wants nothing to do with these, these two women. Oh yeah. She, she works for the studio. She does not give a shit that they are working with the cops. Gail br- tries to bribe her with $50, which does not work. So Jennifer ups the ante and bribes her with a fucking ring that's worth over $2,000. Right. And if you look closely, um, in the next scene when uh, Carrie Fisher is giving the uh, information, she's wearing the ring. (laughs) (laughs) And we find out that that we won't find a Maureen Evans or Maureen Prescott. We'll find a Rena Reynolds. That was her stage name. Mm -hmm. So she goes in, you know, she gets the file out. They're looking through it and they're finding some of the same pictures. Of these, of these, like, headshots and whatever. And they see a list of three horror movies that she was in. I mean, the schlockiest of schlockiest names. Okay, what is it when you have a movie making fun of fake movies, you have the most ridiculous titles ever? Uh, like, these are like Asylum movies right here. I guess. Well, ridiculousness uh, because it's like, is out in the forefront, I guess. It's like, what, like Crazy. Space Psychos, Creatures from the San Andreas Fault. Like, who would make the? Who would go to see those movies? Well, look at the people that fucking still love all those all, every Grindhouse tribute that comes out. True. Clearly, somebody loved it, and clearly, uh, quite a few. I guess so. And we find out that these were produced by uh, John Milton. Now, this is the point where, when um, Carrie Fisher said, I, "I forget what her character's name is." Yeah. Carrie Fisher says, "You know, horror pictures back in Milton's heyday." When we get that bright music sting, and then they go. <laughs> What? Back in what? You know, John John Milton, the horror producer, those were her movies. His and movies. It, yes. And at this point, I'm like, wait, who? Yeah. He wasn't fully identified in the first mm-hmm. time we saw him, you know? And it doesn't even cut to him next. It cuts to Dewey looking at the actual location in the uh, photographs. Mm-hmm. And Wallace looking around the lot. Everyone's just looking around the lot suspiciously. Uh, Sydney's in the bathroom. It looks suspiciously like the bathroom from the high school. Yeah, and she's just, she's frazzled by this whole experience. She's just trying to hold it fucking together. And then, and then she starts to hear things in the stall behind her. Mm-hmm. She, and she goes to check to see what it is, and she sees boots. She has a she has a thing of uh, mace. mace or pepper spray in her fucking pocket, and she sees a thing of boots go up onto the actual toilet itself. So she, she gets ready to walk away, but then she kicks in the stall door, and we find that she runs into... Angelina! And she's she's got a ghost face mask and a few uh, souvenirs. Yep, she decided to take a few things. She's actually completely, fully fucking starstruck by meeting uh, Sydney, like yeah. like creepily starstruck. Yeah, because she's like you're the person I'm playing, and like this is my first big role, my only role possibly in Hollywood, and so I wanted to make you proud. Yep. But then Sydney sees the ghost face mask on the floor, and she's like, "Oh, I wanted to take some souvenirs." Since production shut down, she's pretty much out of a job right now. Yeah, and you're just like, it's a little suspicious. Like, oh, what, what is, could she possibly be, be a oh, killer? Oh, Sydney, it's you. It's the real person. I wish it would have worked out. And she, you know, very sheepishly leaves. Yeah. Then Sydney notices she forgot her hairbrush because she did spill the contents of her purse on the floor. Right. So she goes out to try and find her. And unfortunately, Sydney walks out to the worst, the one place she didn't want to, the fucking Woodsboro set. Right. Okay. Now, this is a great location for her to be 
and the fact that it is literally the recreation of the events of the first movie as well as events that we do, we've never seen before. Yes, because there are uh, flashback elements of the murder of her mother right. in this movie. Now... She, she goes around the lot. She f- sees where the garage door where Tatum was killed, and everything mm-hmm. looks very much like it. Uh, Stu's house with the door wide open, like it was for much of that right. ending and, confrontation. And then, she, and then she goes into her house, and she goes up to her, her room. Now, part of me thinks like this should have been the third act climax. Climax. Think it should have taken place here. Yeah, but I'm also of two minds that when we, the actual climax happens, I'll tell you where I'm torn. Why? It also makes sense why it took place there. I have a feeling I'm torn for the exact same reason. Yeah. And so we have the Creed poster that wasn't, wasn't there in the first movie, yep. but it's here now. But we also have in the background, and this is where this is where a good surround sound setup comes in place, we have the very faint sound being panned around all 5.1 speakers that I have of Sydney and Billy's little conversation from when we first meet them at the beginning of Scream 1 about Billy never occurred to me sneaking into your bedroom window, you know, and their little makeout session. But it's also played mixed in with it. We have we have dialogue from Maureen saying, like, what they've done to me and everything. And so you wonder, like, is Sydney starting to lose her shit yep. here? Is she just hearing voices at this point? And Sydney even says out loud during her little that little voiceover, would you settle for a PG-13 relationship? Recalling of the events of the first movie there. But that's when she starts hearing things around the back lot. She wonders if she's really truly alone or not. Yep, she's looking around. And she decides, you know, to check, to check like the closet in her room, but she intelligently has the the foresight to close the bedroom door, open the closet, which, if you remember, was what would you say perpendicular? Yes. To the bedroom door, open the closet, checks in there, blocks the bedroom door. Very much like in Scream One. Just like in Scream One, she she remembers to do that. You know, looks. Thinking the killer would be coming from there, so she backs away from it, armed with her with pepper, her pepper spray, spray mace, whatever but it is. But she mistakenly puts her back to an open window, or, no, or a window, I should say. And we see the door, the two doors sort of rock together. Because right? of those wind blowing. And this is a jump scare that still got me today. I know it's coming, but like just the music spring happens where Ghostface pops up and literally yanks her out the window. Out the window. They fall on the craft services table, which you know looks like they spend approximately fucking 25 to $50 on trail mix. Yes. <laughs> and... And so um, Sydney is yelling for Dewey, and she goes back into her house. And much like in the first one, the killer comes out of the closet. Out of the freaking closet. Because these are fake uh, fake sets and everything, and so the, everything's open in the background there. The walls are probably wild as well. Well, here's the idea, too. If you're someone that doesn't know that, you could think to yourself, shit, maybe there are two killers. And this comes into play a little bit later. I'll explain. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Sydney, much like in uh, – the first Scream. one, she runs up the stairs and starts throwing things at him. She goes to go into a room on the upper floor, but there is no room there. It's just completely open because it's an open set. She almost falls into her bedroom, which is on the floor below. Right, because in sets like that, you'd want to have, like... Everything you, open for lighting and camera placement. Yeah, but if you're, you're great above you. But she gets the idea. She goes in there, holds on to the side, and when the killer opens the door, she's hanging on the side of it, right next to it, mm-hmm. and pulls him in, and he falls on the fucking bed. So, yeah. No more worse for wear. No. <laughs> But she's now panicking, screaming for Dewey, and she starts hearing, you know, that familiar voice of her mother. And then when it's like, this, is like, this is the second scariest scene to me here. It, it's calling to her over here, and she goes into the bedroom, and in it, the scene is set up for the night her mother was murdered. And something we've never seen before. Yeah. There's a body laying on the floor with, the, you know, the property of Woodsboro Coroner's sheet laying over this body. And there's blood everywhere here, and we hear more dialogue of... 
uh, Billy and Stu taunting her at this point, and she's having about to have a full-blown meltdown right here. She's losing her fucking mind. But we hear Dewey. He gets into the uh, the set. And she yells for him. She goes to the window, but then she hears her mother's voice again and turns around. The body is moving! The body is standing up still with the coroner's sheet over it. Oh, my God. Saying, that is... give mother a hug, and holds up its arms and starts walking towards that her. That is fucking nightmare fuel oh. right there. Oh, I mean, like... I like all the criticism I have against this movie. That's that's still scary yeah. to this day. And she fucking falls out the window, lands on the astro turf below, and Dewey and the cops come running in. The lights turn on. The cops go up there, and she's just having a freak out, saying, "It's like I saw my mother. I heard her voice." And Dewey even says, "You weren't supposed to go in that house. Don't set up for the murder scene." I tell you, people, if any of you got fucking PTSD from anything in your lives out there, this is your worst fucking nightmare. Literally yep. being being brought in like. Going into a recreation of what caused that. Right. And this is when uh, Angelina Tyson walk in. And then, then Kincaid walks in the last. Mm. And, and they said, there's nobody up there. Mm-hmm. There's no killer. Oh, yes. Mm. So uh, Wallace is pretty much grilling, you know, Tyson and Angelina. Uh, trying to accuse her of stealing the mask. Like, you stole the mask or you took it? Say, I took it. It was like a souvenir. And, you know, Tyson, he's proclaiming his innocence. Mm-hmm. So out there, Sydney is just, you know, in panic mode. Nobody believes her, which I don't understand why. We know there's a fucking killer on the loose out to kill people involved with the production. And I love when the commentary track, Wes Curran says they chose to put Patrick, uh, um, to put uh, McDreamy here in uh, glasses, sunglasses, so you couldn't really tell what he's thinking in this moment here, that it makes him look more suspicious right yep. here. And so Kincaid says, I'll take you back to the precinct and we'll keep you safe there. Now, here's one of the interesting things. To go back to the, the whole thing about, you know, Angelita being fucking creepy and talking about how, oh, I studied doing all this. Remember, it was a woman's voice that called looking for Sid's file. Mm-hmm. So you got a couple of red herrings there. Exactly. And this is when the Gales show up. Yep. Uh, Sid is taken back to the precinct by Kincaid and the Gales, the, the Gales, I guess yeah. you call them, <laughs> Jennifer and Gale show up and they show Dewey what they found about how John Milton produced all of it. So we cut into John Milton's office where uh, Roman is basically f- airing out his fucking grievances. It, we find out it's also his birthday. Uh, Variety magazine is calling him a pariah, which he doesn't know what it is. He thinks his career's over. Right. Because of this. There's nobody who want to work with him because you you worked in a movie that people had died. And, and you were questioning in possibly the involvement of that. Yep. And, and Milton keeps telling them, oh, it's good for your mystique. You'll get work. You know how many criminals there are out in here that have good careers in Hollywood. Okay. So, all right. What... A, the, 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 I love the location here because they're using the American cement building off of Worcester Boulevard in Westlake here. And I love that there's the fact there is a diving board off of uh, Milton's office. He, he looks like he's right like, at the window. It's like three stories up. When the fucking film industry crashes at the office where all these guys committed so much suicide that they put a diving board for them. <laughs> it's the joke from the critic like, oh, the jig is up as a, as a studio exec jumps out the window. Mr. Milton, this, uh, this board is here for you when the fucking market crashes. <laughs> <laughs> the, or the, the IT, studio goes bankrupt again. The IT crowd. There's uh, some police officers here. They want to talk about the uh, pension fund. Ah, okay. Irregularities in the pension fund. All and right. then Denholm just opens up the window and casually just whoop, hops out. And so... Tommen Baratheon, if that were his office. <laughs> and so... That's not funny, folks. I'm sorry. I know. Suicide is not funny. Suicide is definitely not funny at all. And so... We find out in the scene here is that they, that Milton knew who Rena Reynolds are. After some pushing, that Milton knew Rena Reynolds and knew that it was Maureen Prescott years later, and that she's had 
history here. Yeah, he hushes off Roman. Just, you know, oh, don't you know, meet me there. Well, don't forget to cut the cake. So Roman leaves. And this is his 30th birthday today. Yep, they start talking to, to Milton, and he's just playing fucking dumb the whole time. You know how many actors have worked for me? Thousands. But they didn't say she was an actor, so Milton, he knows. He has some skeletons. So they go to call uh, Kincaid, and he says, oh, I remember her. She was a, a bit player, you know? And, you know, Jennifer reminds her in a very uh, Geraldo-esque way, which Gail says, that you've made millions exploiting her, her murder, you know? And so... The studio came to me with this this property here. I didn't know her until the, the end here, and then they questioned like, why didn't you just come forward there? Because that would like, cause that would, because it was different back then. Because we what we find out here so is I that couldn't, I couldn't tell anyone I knew her, you know, because uh, imagine the press, and it's like we know that he's still fucking hiding something, right? Like even though he admits to knowing her, even though he admits that these movies that he's made millions on are based off of her life, he still did not say anything to anyone. Nope. And he's trying to get her, get Gail to, to drop it, drop it, and she will not, because she will gladly dig it up on national TV. And he explains it was the seventies; everything was different. Like that's fucking okay. And it's interesting. It's We've really been interesting. Up to this, this scream one. It's really interesting. This fucking speech right here that he gives and what went on with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, because it finds out that the reason why she got into the movies, his movies specifically, is that. She would go to his house. He used to have wild parties where actresses trying to get in could meet men that could get her parts. And so it's hints that that she was gang raped. Yep, that the things went out of hand at that party. And she, but she got, but he tries to justify it, saying like, "Oh, she knew what she was getting into." Like so, no oh, person. It's, ho- it's Hollywood. You gotta, you wanna be big in Hollywood. You gotta play the game. Now I wonder, since. Wes Craven was so part of writing of this movie, and with Aaron Kruger here, this cannot be a coincidence that that Harvey Weinstein produces these movies as well. This it cannot be. You know what? I I kind of feel, and I mean, time will tell as his trial goes on, and as more things you know over the years come out. I kind of feel like. It would have been a coincidence if you go anywhere. I bet you that this has just been... It's one So of, systematic in Hollywood. It's one of Hollywood's darkest fucking secrets, man. Yeah. All, you know, left and right. I bet every fucking studio was dabbling in this. I don't just believe it was Miramax. I bet you it was going on from oh, you, back in the day. Look at how they treated fucking, you know, the actresses back in like Judy Garland's days right, and shit like, like that. There, there is a podcast called You Must Remember This. Their whole premise is that they examined the unknown and forgotten history of Hollywood's first century, like predominantly from like the, the 20s on to like the 60s and everything. And they, she does, the Karina Longworth does an episode on Judy Garland and how fucked up her life was dealing with the studio system back then, how that kind of fried her brain because of all the stuff that she had to be forced to do in, in that system and how Howard Hughes and how abusive he was and then how crazy Hollywood has been for decades at this point. Yes. That, I, I don't believe that this is a coincidence. I think if it was a coincidence, it would have been coincidence no matter what studio fucking made this movie. Right. Every yeah. one of these movie studios has got more fucking skeletons than the fucking crypt. Yeah, I guess as you could say, it's just ironic that Harvey was so involved with those kind of things and he produced these movies, much like how Milton was the stab series. Yeah, I, 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 
I want to say find it ironic, but I, I feel like it was so commonplace that if it were anywhere else, you could say it was ironic. I, I don't feel like it's ironic. I feel like it was just – it was like it, it, an accepted facet of Hollywood that just now is being used as a plot point. Right. And, and it's bullshit. And, and, and like – what, it's bullshit that they're using it's, as plot points? No, it's bullshit, bullshit that, 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 this all went, that this became so fucking normalized amongst Hollywood. Right. There, there is, there's even an old joke about Hollywood. It's like, it's better to be caught with a dead woman than a live boy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how rampant yeah. the sexual abuse was going on and in Hollywood. And just all, the, all the, the stars that have over the centuries look at it, they just fucking rode them like goddamn horses and then put a fucking bullet in their head when they were done. How they just yeah. threw them away like they were nothing when they couldn't do anymore. Right. And how many lives were destroyed. Look at look at the story of, uh, what was his name, Bobby Driscoll, the one who played the little boy in Song of the South. Yeah. He died in, like, what, his 30s? Yeah. And he was dead in the streets, homeless, in New York City, and was buried in an unknown grave. Yep. I mean, um, then you have George Reeves committed suicide because of how dealing with the, the how the system was and everything, like it, the original Superman. It doesn't even just affect the women. I mean, it affects, but the women definitely got the fucking shortest end of that straw, it, you know, in every case, because you could exploit them sexually like that. And it's disgusting. It is so disgusting. And I'm just, I mean, it does make for a pivotal plot point in this, you know, saying that, like, holy fuck, this, everything... This dark secret coming out, and we'll, when, when we get to the ending, the repercussions of it, because right. this is going back to the past, but like, in even even if you just had the first scream to go by, it was the dark secret of Maureen Prescott's life that she was, you know, so promiscuous, and that it caught up to her and killed her. Right. And, and almost her daughter. Yeah, and, and like, it seems like, like, even like the, the killer at one point, once the, that person's field, like, even calls her a slut at one point. Mm-hmm. And how, it, like, her life was completely changed by that. And we'll get into that later on. And, like, there was more footage shot of her prom- promiscuity later on, which we'll get into. But moving on. Anywho, back at um, Kincaid's but- office, uh, Sidney looks at some of the movie posters he has up. And he's got some books about movies on his desk that she's browsing at. And she's asking him what he knows about, you know, movie trilogies and stuff. Um, he's saying, you know, oh, you can call me Mark, not Detective Kincaid. And she says, I'll call you Mark when you catch the killer. Mm-hmm. But he comes with the one line that was popular in trailers and TV spots. The only thing I know about movie trilogies is all bets are off. Yeah. So and here's, well, sorry. No, you say. Well, here's where we start to learn more about Kincaid. Um, she asked if he was assigned to the case and well, she asked if he requested the case. He said, no, I'm always assigned to these, you know, Hollywood Based murder cases, you know, I grew up here. I know the studios. I know the studios. I know all about this. And he says, to him, Hollywood's about death because I'm a homicide detective. That's what I deal with on a daily basis. And it kind of, it changes a person once you deal with death so much. Yep, he gets into just seeing the violence he sees all fucking day long, every day. And he tries to, like, you know, level with Sid. Say, just like, I'm sure you understand about this because of all the death you've seen in your life. And just how, you know, your mind is so fucked up, how it never goes away. How you, you're basically watching a scary movie in your head the whole time and you're mm. watching it by yourself. And how you have ghosts that don't go away. But does this come off just a little creepy? It does. Like, like, it, it, do you think he intentionally played it to be slightly menacing? Are we talking Patrick Dempsey playing it? Yes. Um, I think so to an extent. I, but, I think he's playing it to 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 raise the suspicions of the audience members. To raise suspicions, but also just to show that, like, 
this guy, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, he ain't playing with a full deck. No. He's got problems. Right. But he's using that to say, like, to like you said, to just level with Sydney because I know you probably have problems because I have problems mm-hmm. because you you deal with this on day and on a daily basis. It changes a person. Yep, and she confesses like she didn't she didn't her mom had so many secrets she doesn't know who her mom truly was. Right, he says you know who she was to you. And that's the important thing. Yep. So he decides to get up and go search the set because he you know believes her, and you know. She asks him as he leaves, you know, what's your favorite scary movie? And, and he retorts, my, my life. life. And she agrees. He says, mine too. Yep. So we had a nice moment between fucked up individuals. <laughs> yeah, there's real, real messed up people here. And so the Scooby gang is trying to figure out what the hell is going they're in on the, here. Yep, they're in the mystery machine. They think uh, Milton's involved somehow. They want to go back to the uh, police precinct. And but, Jennifer and Gail, of course, are fucking fighting with each other. Of course. And that's when Dewey gets a call from Sydney saying, hey, I'm going to Roma's party because he may have... Because John Dewey, Milton has contacted me and said he has information about my mom. Yeah, and so the Kincaid's going to come with me, so I have I have official LAPD... Um, uh, Protection. But so, I'd feel better if you were there, so they decided to go on their way because they were going to go back to see Sid anyway, so now they're going to go to this party. <laughs> but it's awkward about how Sid abruptly, you know... Hangs up. He's like, bye. Yeah. Or uh, later. So they get here, and um, there's something about this place you told me. Yeah. The the Milton's house is the Canfield uh, Morano estate, and actually is the same house, the same grounds they used in Halloween H2O. Which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think makes sense because they're both Dimension films. So I understand why they would want to use the location. And there's just the construction of, like, the hallways and the set and, like, certain rooms. It makes sense. It looks familiar. One of them I'm starting to think is, like, one of these hallways we see is the one where Michael Myers and Laurie Strode have their fucking fight when he descends from his one-armed pull-up. His one-armed... And she gets hit with a fire axe. Right. And then stabs her or slashes her in the same spot. But anyway, do we the, the Scooby gang arrive mm-hmm. at the party. Asking for Sydney, and Roman says, "Oh, Sydney, she's right here." And he points to Angelina. It's like, no, Sydney. Like I'm, I'm Gail, and she's, you, and she's going. Oh, and Ro- Sydney Prescott. Roman's surprised to hear the real Sydney Prescott's going to be there. He didn't even know she was around. Yeah. So Angelina, who is a little odd right now, maybe it's the champagne, mm-hmm. says, "Oh, I love this house. It's so Hollywood. We should, you know, check this place out." And Roman says, "I heard that they had a." Uh, uh, a secret screening room. room here. It was in the 70s. It was all crazy with drugs and girls and booze and shit, you know. He's very inebriated at this point. Yep, because he's, you know, sad about everything. His career, he's turning 30, so he's having a little bit of a crisis here. Uh, Tyson's currently the voice of reason saying, we're going to go really go splitting up with fucking, you know, there's a killer on the loose. Because every time we split up, uh, Dewey ends up a goddamn shish kebab. Yeah. Which is true. So they all decide to split up in pairs of two. Uh, like a bunch of dumbasses. What is this clue? They're like, uh, one of us is the killers, and the killer might be killed. Well, I, we do, were... I do see a candlestick, and they are in a dining room right now. It's true here. <laughs> this is war, Peacock. You can't make any omelets without bringing eggs. Every cook will tell you that. So Roman and uh, Jennifer decide to go inspect around, and they find a basement. Jennifer doesn't want to go around there because she doesn't like basements. Roman decides to go down with the fucking bottle of champagne in hand. Um, Tyson and Angelina, they you go know upstairs, sp- go upstairs. But downstairs, we see uh, uh, Ghostface just sitting there. But Roman lifts up the mask, and it's just on a mannequin. Yeah. So I guess that's... Uh, I'm sure it's... <laughs> the true villains of this movie, mannequin. This is, yes. a, this is a mannequin three. We never knew it. Um, In the basement, there's all these props and monster costumes and everything. 
from all the movies John Milton's done. Well, I imagine this would be Roger Corman's uh, basement. Basement. And then there's a coffin that Roman goes to inspect and everything, and there's the fake body in there, and everything's like, oh, huh, everything's fine. But we hear a noise, and we cut away from Roman. And we, everything Jennifer's, just goes quiet. She's here. shouting for him, but he's not responding. Dewey they, and Gail are just waiting for a signal to arrive, and they're not. And so, like, all right, well, why don't you just call her back and see where she is? And so Dewey obliges. But the phone that he's calling... They hear two phones. One's ringing in the closet next to him. They open the door... And there's the ghost face costume with the cell phone and the fucking voice cha- the voice changer. Yeah, the 24th yep. century voice yep. changer. Gail inspects it, goes to play with it, and discovers that it's got other voices. So he knows it's got Sid's voice, so they know that the fucking killer's here. Yeah. So Dewey and Gail pair off and decide to go... Well, no, they split up and decide to go looking around. Dewey then finds uh, Tyson. And then... They said, hey, I, where's Angelina? I don't know. She came in this room. I came to look at her and she disappeared. Why? What's going on? And then Dewey gives his, his trailer line. Looks like stabbed through his back in production. production. But Gail goes down into the basement by herself like a smart person would do. Yeah. Goes over that same coffin, but there's like an arm sticking out. She opens it up. There's Roman. He's fucking dead. And he's got a knife in his chest. Yeah. Blood splattered everywhere. She even checks his pulse. And it's Checks fucking, his pulse. Checks his pulse. Checks his pulse. pulse. Bueller. <laughs> But from behind a little curtain back there was Jennifer hiding, and she comes out, screams, and they go run away. This hallway that they run into next, tell me that's tell me that's not fucking the Redressed? one where, my, where Michael so. Myers descends from. Maybe repainted, but I think, yeah, you might be right here. Yeah. And so, really like Clue, well, a painting <laughs> opens up, and Angelina's going and found a secret passageway here. And they inform her, like, hey, the killer's here. We got to sit together. And Angelina's like, no, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I'm like, no, you'd be safer if you stay with us. Listen to us. And this is when... Angelina stops and very, like, weirdly turns around. But as she... Very suspiciously. But that quickly ends right when she lets out uh, uh, this great big revelation of, I did not fuck that pig Milton... Just to, to die, die here with second-rate second celebrities, celebrities like, like you, you two. two. Well, we know how Angelina got the role. <laughs> but I love the reaction <laughs> shot to the Gales. They're like, oh, my God, you did? The two of them wide-eyed, jaws dropped, look at each other. They're like, oh. And then they run away. So Angelina running away, telling them to get out, is immediately attacked and killed by Ghostface. Right. The Gales hear the scream and come running back. They look down the staircase she just went, and there's her fucking body all wide-eyed and dead being dragged away. They look at each other and then scream. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. They're great. Like, I, I, I can totally see, like, just a whole movie of them being together I'd be happy with. Yep. So they find Dewey. Uh, they tell him what happened, and then Ghostface runs out and punches him in the fucking face. Yeah. They run to the next room where Tyson is, and he... Uh, scuffle ensues. It's pretty much like a, a four-on-one right now. Yeah, and Letizia gets stabbed in the, in the stomach here, and Mealy runs out. They try to get the hell out of there. Jennifer hides in a closet. Yep, and Gail starts trying to attack uh, Ghostface with a... Uh, Clearly, he lined it with fucking some kind of helmet padding because he gets hit with a vase in the back of the head and, and like walks, uh, walks away with it. Tyson tries to escape here, but Ghostface is in pursuit. Jennifer is... She leads back in the closet and goes through another secret passage. Like, there's secret passages all over the fucking place. Right. You know? Tyson, he's trying to get away, but he's stabbed. He's bleeding bad. And this is like, okay, this stunt here is probably one of the worst stunts. Like, not one of the worst stunts, like, in bad way. It just looks Most like painful-looking stunts. Because Tyson runs down the hallway, and there's this carpet that lines the hallway here. A rug, I should say. He's running along. Ghostface grabs it. Like a runner. Yeah. A runner rug. 
and yanks it out from underneath. Uh, Tyson picked the worst stop, worst point to fucking stop and look to see if Ghostface was there because he pulls that carpet right. He pulls the rug out from under him. And literally does a backflip landing on his shoulder. Oh, my God. It was like the time fucking Chris Benoit broke Sabu's neck. Oh. So he then slams Tyson against like a cabinet and throws him off a balcony and Tyson is dead. Wham. Uh, Jennifer, looking through this secret passage, comes to this weird, like, spiral staircase brick wall well. Yeah. She gets to the bottom, the door opens, and Ghostface is already there. Now, this, I feel, also lends credibility to the idea that there could be two killers. Right. There has been in the past. Why not? Mm-hmm. And, how, is, how the Ghostface is getting around so efficiently you know, here. He gets in the set. But we'll continue with yeah. that, you know? So, the the, the chase continues. Uh, he seems to, Ghostface decides to take his time a little because she's trapped. She's back in the actual closet area of the room they were in. Now, this room has, it looks to be mounted on the wall, these vertical mirrors, pretty thin vertical mirrors, kind of like the ones you hang on the back of your door, except a little wider, like right. a little wider than a person. But they're, excuse me, lined up all the way along the wall, like the whole surface area of the wall. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, in this secret passage, they're actually two-way mirrors. Right. Because this is a house of a pervert, so if obviously somebody would be behind the mirror and watch the person oh, yeah. having sex in the bed. That's it's in the probably bed. voyeurs watching all this shit go on. Oh, yeah. totally. But this is when Dewey and Gale realize, hey, the glass is moving. So Dewey decides to unload all of his bullets by pu- shooting out all the glass. Yep. Uh, Jennifer's banging on it. By the time he gets to the last one, Jennifer's body falls out and she's dead. But where did Ghostface go? Is he like like? Flattening himself against the wall of the last like, section that he didn't shoot. How the fuck did he disappear? Yep. So they're looking for Tyson. They can't find him. Do we split dis- up yeah, again? Do we decide to split up? Gail gets out her phone to try and call uh, for help, but uh, as Dewey runs away to check out front, Ghostface grabs Gail. Yeah. Pulls her into the kitchen area where she, you know, stomps on his foot. Fucking. And they tumble down the staircase yep, into the, two the basement. Of them, she kicks him backwards, and the two of them go stumbling down the tumbling down the staircase. Right, stumbling down the staircase. I almost said, yeah, that would have been good. And Ghostface is knocked unconscious here. Yep, Ghostface is in a vulnerable position, something we don't see very often. No, and so and like Dewey finds Tyson, he's dead. Yep, he goes back to try and find Gale, and Gale tries to get past Ghostface, but he's not dead. He's just out cold. He just kind of like. Jumps up in a stabbing motion, but then quickly falls down. So Gail calls him from her phone that she did not drop. And this is like this was going to be extended because apparently there was an edit here because like they would do like almost like a twenty questions to try and figure out because Gail's voice is speaking to him, but Dewey knows that the killer can manipulate his voice to sound like anybody. So they had like like a quiz to try and figure out is this the real Gail or not. Mm-hmm. But they decided to cut it here and make it a little bit faster, and because then. Because Gale screams because Ghostface uh, jumps up. He props right back up. Dewey opens the door and tries to shoot him, but he's out of ammo. Because he wasted all his fucking ammo, like you do. Yep. So Ghostface picks up his knife and fucking, like, throwing knives. Yeah. Knives at, like the knife throw at the circus. And the, the knife flying at uh, Dewey, another big trailer shot there. I remember I thought that, yep. that, 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 that was how he's going to die. It's The knife hits him, but it hits him handle side. Now, when I saw this in theaters, I remember my friend I saw it with turning to me and saying, what the hell happened? I said, the, the handle hit him. Oh, because it does happen pretty fast. Yeah. It takes you a minute. You may second guess yourself like, wait, wait, what? But mm-hmm. the handle side fucking hit him. I wonder if, you know, Ghostface planned for that. Yeah. But he pulls out a second knife after Dewey falls down the stairs and Gale's over his body. He's got him. Right. And so we cut back to the precinct and all the cops are just having pizza, having a grand all time. Yep. So, uh, 
you know, they're having the pizza. Wallace is there with all of them. He's saying, hey, anybody see, you know, it's not a pizza party. Has anybody seen my fucking partner? Yeah, and they're like, yeah, we don't know where he is. Kincaid left and he hasn't come back. Sydney's sitting there bored, you know, Reading looking. Reading the screenplays or whatever books they're on there. But she finds a file on herself that Kincaid has. And it has even personal photographs of Sid. It has everything. Newspaper articles. Fucking. I think he had baby photos at one point, at least a child photo of her. And it also has a fucking uh, production still of Scream 2 that somehow, somehow the police got. And so it looks like Kincaid's been following her for a, quite a while here. Now, we debated about this earlier. How did, how did he get the fucking file? Right. My what? theory, and I'll get to this, I'll tell you, I'll elaborate more at the end why if I remember, because mm-hmm. I fucked this up last time, <laughs> is that Dewey gave it to him. It's the file that Dewey took from Woodsboro to protect her. Okay. I'm guessing that, you know, Kincaid, as adamant as he was to get in touch with Sydney, wanted to know all he could, and basically used used his police card, his police trump card, mm-hmm. to make Dewey hand over the file. I think this is a personal file, that this is his own homework here that he's been studying Sydney for years and it's just collected in this one file here. But why though? Well, we'll get to that in the end. Well, anywho, Sid's cell phone rings and all she's hearing is herself. You know, like she says, hello, hello, uh, who's calling? Uh, who's calling? Yeah. Just like repeating back to her and in the exact cadence and everything. Yep. And she's like, whoever is calling me, Gail, Dewey, whoever, like, all I can hear is myself. And it turns out it is the killer talking to her. And he threatens her saying, hey, I have your friends. They, like, are you sure, like, are you even sure that these aren't just voices in your head? But come to this house and find yep. out. He even, make, he even makes sure that, like, uh, she doesn't, he says, if you do one thing to attract attention to yourself because you know she's at the precinct, I'll kill them both. Yeah. So Sid goes into, you know, the next, what is it, like a little back storage area? Like that, yeah. Back office. And, you know, tells her, you know, meet at this at this area. And as Sid's looking around in here, uh, we notice a little something hanging up. Yeah, we see a bull, we see some bulletproof vests, we see some jackets. And then she's coming to the decision what she's going to have to do here. Um, and then she's like, all right, where is it? And she's like, I'll call you when you're on your way. And so she's like, shit, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? But the killer also says she'd have been so happy to see us together. Yeah. Using the mother against her again. Yep. So Sid, you know, is finally faced with this final confrontation. She's having fucking panic. Decides to arm herself for it and go for it. She goes into, before she leaves, she goes into Kincaid's desk and finds a little gun he has. Yeah, like uh, an ankle, uh, a... Ankle holster. Ankle holster and a little, like... Derringer right there. Yeah. So she goes to the location. She comes up to the pool area, finds Tyson's dead body, and laying on the ground is a little metal detector. And then she gets a call from the killer again. It's like, hey, scan yourself with that metal detector, and then you'll be allowed in. Uh, she starts scanning her one leg, scans up her body to her chest, where she's actually still wearing uh, Derek's letters from Scream 2. Yep, and that's what sets off the alarm. And then that's when she scans her other leg. Well, Ghostface is not fooled. He says, the other leg, too. You right. know, Scans down there. The metal detector goes off, and there's the gun. It tells her to toss in the pool, and she abides. Yep. And he says, well, well, come inside. Now come inside, Sydney, and she says, don't fuck away. How I know they're not dead already. Take she, a look for yourself. Yep. So she peeks her head in, and there the two of them, Gail and Dewey, tied to a fucking chair. Yeah. Puts her phone back into her pocket, tries to free them, but Ghostface fucking interrupts. And, you know, the, the beginnings of this fight ensues. He knocks her down, but 
she pulls up her pant leg and she had her personal gun from her house. In the other side of her sock and she puts five rounds into him. Yep. Dropping him. She starts to free them again, but he disappears. Like he's he's taken bullet after bullet and he seems to be superhuman somehow. Yeah. And that's when she goes to investigate, we'll see where he went, and that's when Kincaid shows up. She's got exactly one shot left. Kincaid shows up, he's got holding his gun at her, finds Tyson's body. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, oh, I heard said there were, Tyson said there was a party here tonight. Third Act Celebration, better better go check it out. And Patrick Dempsey is doing such great fucking visual acting in this. Like, every expression on his face. He's he got, read like, in two, two ways. Here. He's got almost this fucking smirk. He puts his gun away saying, Miss Prescott, I'm here to help you. And when yeah. she puts the gun down, this, this look, oh, my God. And he, he looked like, oh, my God, he's got to be in on it. But that's when Ghostface pops up behind um, Sid. Sid and... Patrick Debbie pushes Sid out of the way, and he takes a knife to the chest. And she hits her head on the fucking chair. Do we side too? But he's not done with the kind, and the struggle continues here. And to I think like another stunt that looks like it hurts so much. Oh my god! She kicks him, and he hits like this fucking marble fireplace head with first. The, like like and look nose like blam his head like whacks back, and he collapses to the floor. Sydney fires her last shot and misses. Knows she's out. So the, the you know the chase begins, and Ghostface does his best running into shit. On a sharp turn. He goes right through uh, uh, a window right there. It is hilarious. Yep. So Sid manages to get into like a little library room, locks herself in. Ghostface can't get in, but she notices light coming from this one bookcase. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's the hidden bookcase trick. So, so you know, to do, let's do the smart thing here. Let's totally not let him know where I am. She starts throwing all the fucking books on the floor looking for the fake one. Yeah. And so she then she finds the one. I'm totally the not in here. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm totally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally not in here. It's exactly. So she closes the door and tries to lock it. Yep. And then we find that she's been she enters the the hit, the screening room and she hears the voice of her mother again telling her to come in. And then it's when she sees footage of Maureen filmed by someone on a projector and the voice is telling talking to her saying everybody loved me. Oh, have you missed me, Sydney? And out from the corner walks Ugh. Oh, the fucking Jesus body with the with, with the corner blank with the corner blanket over the bloody corner blanket over, and he says, "Don't you remember your mother?" And the voice changes back to Ghostface, and he remotely locks the bookcase from behind. Yeah. At this point, he begins his speech, and we find out who this person is, like what the connection is. That this guy, Ghostface, he reveals. Well, first he reveals he's been wearing a bulletproof vest. And he, she asks, who the hell are you? The other half of you. I searched for a mother, too, an actress named Rena Reynolds. Tried to find her my whole life. And this is where the continuity comes in place. She says, four years ago, I tracked her down. It should have been like five. Yeah, at least five. But she threw him away, you know, since you found a, a new life as Maureen Prescott. You know, she rejected me. She accepted you as your, her only child. So it's like, oh, my God, Sydney has a fucking sibling. Yeah. Shut me out in the cold forever. Her own son. And we pull the mask off, and it's really Roman. He wasn't dead. And then you're like, some audience members are probably going, who? Because we've only seen him with glasses. Now he doesn't have glasses. Yeah. Just cut out Gale checking his pulse. And that would be a lot easier to buy. The fact that, like, how does he, you can't fake a pulse. Like, I guess you like if you pinch your arm, like, that's one way of doing it, like, Trying to hide your pulse in your arm or something like that, but like I think you can slow a pulse enough to where if someone checks quickly, they might think you're dead. Because isn't that what Hannibal Lecter did in fucking uh, Silence of the Lambs? Oh, he, yeah. They tell a story that he his pulse like um, 
intentionally dropped so low that, that like, they had to bring him into uh, for they think he was going to go into cardiac arrest or something like that. So and when they removed the straps to get him in there, that's when he sprung up and he attacked the nurse and he gouged that mouth of her face mm-hmm. before the guards can stop him. Anyway, I, I just find it's a really weak thing that like if it's such a silly thing like just cut away from it, don't have her check his his pulse and everything, and you just buy it that he got killed and everything, yeah. but. And so Roman's is Roman, brother. Roman is the half brother of Sydney. Yeah, and he wanted to find his mother. I guess he wanted to have a normal life. And the fact that you know he's th- this product of, you know, this fucking gang rape. He's the, the, the bastard son of a thousand men, kind of in a yeah. Freddy Krueger kind of way. And his own mother shut him away. Like he has no fucking family. He has fucking nothing. Yeah, and then Sydney has the perfect life. Yep. And he doesn't get it, and it drove him fucking insane. Now, this also makes sense with what we were saying earlier, the idea of two killers. There aren't two killers. There's one. Roman's able to get where he's going because he knows the fucking set like the back of his – it's his fucking movie. He knows the set like the back of his hand. They were supposed to be two killers. They are supposed to be. Angelina's going to be the second killer. Yep. And then they're going to be in a relationship together. So he's having sex with the person who's playing his sister. Mm Mm-hmm. So really adding another twist to that, and that Angelina was going to fake her death here. Yep, I like that we saw. But while this is going on, we keep cutting to footage of Maureen like being observed by uh, Roman, and we see that Maureen's been with Cotton, and then we see Billy's father. Now, apparently, they showed they shot so much footage of like Maureen coming out of this hotel, of this motel, with different members of the crew. Oh shit! To make it seem like she was having sex with a lot of people here. So I'm just kind of glad they did. I'm glad they didn't. They didn't include. Oh that. no, I'm glad they. Well, I, that's the thing, though. It's one of those things where it's like you don't need to see it. You know it. No, and but it, but it also gives credence to the line that like Billy said, like I quote that like that she's a slut whore who flashed her shit all over town like she was Sharon, Sharon Stone, Stone or something like that. And so, really revealing the fact that yeah, that she like that Maureen was a very sad, upset person, and like how she. Dealt with that was by throwing herself into the arms of many different men. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, there, there's been many, you know, things researched on the effect of, like, rape on women. It, 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 anyone can react in any different Trauma way. Trauma has, has different effects on different people. Yes, promiscuity is one effect that, like, I, I've read that, like, it's the feeling that you're taking back control of your sexuality mm-hmm. because it was taken from you in this. Or the feeling like because you were raped, you're this like dirty, disgusting person. Now that's how you think of yourself. So you go out there and you know look for this. There's any kind of reasons why this could happen. And I know it sounds very. I don't want to sound like we're being cold or that we no, know no, no, everything. No, 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 but... no, but like it's it's like I just want to clarify that we are two men that have haven't dealt with this kind of situation personally. So it's no. like, I, like, I don't want to like say like we're experts in the situation right here or blaming anybody or anything like that. I just want to put that disclaimer out there. I'm going by stuff. I've just read. read yes. Like, this is, it, it, it can happen. It can happen. And so, and we don't want to like blame anybody. Like, Oh, no, there's like, no blaming. Them. No, it, it, the only person I, I, I blame is the one who did it. Yeah. And, and I feel so bad for this character that she's like, she's literally, just been drugged through the mud here, to, and this is like how, how it kind of pays off here. It's a fucking tragedy in many ways. It's, right, it's the tale of a, of, of a real like tragedy. How this, how how this horrible thing that happened to this woman, how, the ripple effect it had on people's lives decades later. Right, and the fact that Roman decided to show this footage to Billy. That's a pivotal thing that they say is that he was the one that showed this footage to Billy and inspired him. You know, gave him a few port, uh, pointers. 
have a partner to sell out in case you get caught, find someone to frame. And he says it was like you're making your own movie. And mm-hmm. that's another – that ties also into the whole uh, self-aware movie aspect because Roman is a movie director. Yeah. And Billy is a movie fanatic. Yeah. You know? And even like even says to Sydney, like Sydney says, "This is all about you." I'm like I'm a director, Sydney. I direct. Sydney says, "This you. This is all because of you." Right. And that is why I fucking like this more than Scream Two because this truly. I mean, yes, you have to suspend your disbelief. It is a little far fetched that all this could go the way it does, but the fact that all this, all the killings have been because of one person. It, it culminates because of all directing of it, behind the scenes. He is the root of the evil. Here. He is the root of this evil. Now, like this, the climax happens in this screening room here, the final showdown. Yes. Now, like I was saying before, it would have been cool to have the final showdown on the back lot with the recreated sets of Woodsboro. Yes. Which I think it would just be a nice, like, kind of like story circle thing, like ends where it began. However, you could say all this began in this room. Yes, because as Roman continues ranting, saying that, you know, he had no idea that the movie, that this was going to make a movie out of itself, he talks about how he's introducing Sydney the victim, Sydney the star, and Sydney says about how, you know, yeah, this is a movie and the good guy's going to win. But. He believes, like most insane people, he believes he's the fucking hero and she's the villain. Every great villain thinks they're the hero of their own story. Every insane person. And Roman then produces uh, Milton, who he had tied up and stored in a closet, mm-hmm. basically saying what he did to her made her a slut. And, and all the things. His words. How, yes. Th- this is his words. Mm-hmm. How she never recovered from that night. They fucked her three ways from Sunday, ruined her life. So, like, yes, th- truthfully, th- th- all this this horror that has been released was created in this fucking room. Right. So it makes sense. It would end here. And it would end here. And, and at the same time, Dale, uh, Gail and uh, Dewey have like, freed themselves and checked on Kincaid. He's still alive. Kincaid gives, um, them the gun and says, go get the son of a bitch. And they do. And so they're in hot pursuit trying to save, uh, Sydney here. Yep. And you know, he's, uh, Roman is slowly, given away part of his plan. Now, it, it works really well as both a movie director and an insane person because he's making it where Sydney hate finds out the truth about her mother, hates John Milton, and murders him and was responsible for, you know, killing all these people in these string of murders. So he's going to try to implicate her and yep. that she was the villain the entire time. He uses his uh, voice thing and he plays a little tape that he's going to put in his answering machine back when answering machines actually use cassette tapes yeah. of Sydney saying, I know who, you're, who you are, what you did to my mother, and I'm going to make you pay. So Roman, in many ways, he's killing many birds with one stone. He's getting his revenge on Sydney, that he believes. He's, you know, directing a real-life film where this, you know, the person he hates the most is the actual villain, and he's going to now kill her and stop her and be the hero. Yeah. And he's also, you know, killing the person now, John Milton, who fucking caused all this shit to happen in the first place, who basically caused his existence to happen. Yeah. And I love the fact that, like, Milton tries to say, like, no, I'll give you everything you want. Whatever budget, script approval, final cut. I already have it. I'm like, like, very poor choice of words there. And I love how, like, now, with Scream 2, did you feel like Mickey and uh, Debbie Saul's, like, um, their exposition, their, like, reveal of their plan and everything – do you? How do you think compares that to Roman speech here? Uh, I thought Mickey's fucking suck balls. Because mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's weak. <laughs> uh, Debbie Sultan. Weak. 
Weak. <laughs> Debbie Saltz I bought into way more because she's Billy's mother and her, like she said, her motive is old-fashioned revenge. Mm-hmm. You killed my son. But I love Romans way more because Romans was the creation of all this. Mm-hmm. She never would have fucking left her husband went fucking nuts if any of this didn't happen. And how do you think of his performance of him going, going, getting louder and louder and becoming more and more unhinged as he goes? Oh, my God. He starts screaming, talking about, you know, I'm going to kill you for the family and for the life and for everything you took that should have been mine. And I love how Cindy is like, just like, she's just like, really? Like... She she can't deal with this right now. She's like that that that's your explanation here. That's the that that's why you do it. And she's like, seriously, like I've heard this shit before. She's done with it. She doesn't want to hear it anymore. It's like you don't take any fucking responsibilities. And like Roman's like, no, I'm having my moment here. You're not going to take it away from me. Yep. And then finally the two of them fight, and it, and it's on, man. It's a battle. The two of them. She's throwing fucking lampshades, all types of shit at him. Hits him over the head with a fucking uh, vase. You know yeah. he's. And like so much that they hang each other with bottles. They're, throwing they're fucking hands. boxing, man. They're fucking swinging rights and lefts at each other. I mean, like he even like bounces her head off the, the bar at one point. Yeah, uh, it is ridiculous here. It, it's a hell of a fight. She hits him over the head with a fucking beer bottle. Hits him over the head. tries to hit him with a chair. He trips her, knocks her down. Now this was a kind of a different ending here because like the little bit of the editing here. It's happens. more condensed originally. Yes. Um, meanwhile, Dewey and Gale they find the. Uh, the room with the bookshelf, they're trying to get in. They they can't figure this fucking thing out for the life of them. So Dewey gets the extremely intelligent idea, like he always does, while Roman has Sydney and he's, like, choking her. Dewey finds, like, a pair of tweezers, like, antique tweezers laying on the, like, nightstand or whatever. Yeah. And he does what any sane person does. He sticks him in the fucking electrical outlet. <laughs> he doesn't even put anything over his hand. It's just his bare hand. Let me tell you, folks. Electricity is always looking for a ground source. Electricity is always looking for somewhere to go where it can disperse. The human body is an excellent ground source, which is why electrocution deaths happen. <laughs> and this fucking this uh, intelligent person, this fucking Mensa member, decides to stick a pair of tweezers <laughs> into the fucking outlet. And then when the fucking thing pops, because the breaker pops, shutting all the lights off in the screening room, he just flies back like, whoa, like, <laughs> you didn't expect that? Like, did do we just have get struck with a moment of ADD where it's like, hey, look, tweezers, I'm going to stick them in the outlet. Do we need those, like, child-proof, like, plastic outlet covers to stick in there? When for Dewey's Dewey? around, I think so. Finish it off as you do, Fee. I was waiting for you to do that. I was waiting for you to drop that. I'm going to stick the tweezers in the outlet because it's cool. Zap. Pop, whoa, I put my pants. <laughs> like, oh, like, all right, you were looking to distract him for a moment. You were looking to... I, I do what the fuck they were looking to I do. I think he was trying to undo the, undo the electronic locks and try and... Get that open. I guess, but it's like the... the, the it doesn't the, work. Well, it didn't work because it didn't loosen the electronic portion, but from when when Sydney went in there, it looked to be more mechanical than anything else. Yeah. She pulls this, you know, this false book, which is attached to a lever, which opens, re- releases the lock, and then she locks... Fuck, I don't know. Fuck. So, so the, Fuck. <laughs> so they decided to go a marathon run around the house to try and get a way in. Yep, we hear them yelling. They get to the other door, which is locked. And somebody's lockpicking it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Roman has released his grip of Sydney for that moment. The uh, door, sees, op- door opens and it's Kincaid with, with his little derringer. With his little pistol that he's been keeping. Not his dick, his little, uh, an actual pistol. Yeah. Oh. I and wasn't going there. There's Sid laying on the floor. He's trying to get her attention. Saying, Sid, where is he? And, and out, from no, out from nowhere, he hits him with a chair. Good go. And Good this, go. This is apparently a reshoot as well because he's wearing a wig in this scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, originally, um, in the original, more condensed ending, mm-hmm. uh, 
Kincaid wasn't in it at all. No. Yeah. Like Sydney would, ju- we would see Sydney's side of it more often. See her go hiding and try and turn the tables on. on. It was more of a cat and mouse type deal where she's hiding amongst the furniture, which I don't see how that could really work. He's looking for her in the room. There's like a lot of like fur- there's a lot of couches and ottomans laying around that she like crawls around. But he's at least like six two. He could be able to see the uh, entire. I room. know it's impl- I I love the theatrical ending they went with. Anyway. Yeah, and so Sydney says like, "Hey, looking for something," and she branches uh, the killer's knife. But he says, found something, and he grabs the Kincaid's little pistol and shoots her with it. Oh, my God. And th- that's part of why the ending was reshot, because they wanted to feel like Sid- they wanted you to feel like, because this is the final chapter, that Sydney could lose. Yeah, because they thought, like, after the first uh, rough cut, they said, like, it was just too easy for her to yeah. win. So he shoots her in the stomach, knocks her down, gets up, and then shoots her right in the chest. And I remember thinking to myself in the theater, I was like, oh, my God, did they really go there? How did she- the theater react? I don't remember. Okay. I was there with a bunch of fucking stupid teenagers, so. Okay. Uh, along with myself. It, it didn't really feel like there were hard, you had hardcore horror fans there. And this was a small theater, too. Mm-hmm. And so Gail and Dewey um, are approaching the room. And that's when Roman He's takes a moment to say, I did it. He's he starting to realize, hey, I finally got her. He's starting to reala- realize that and, like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. But Sid's gone. Turns around and Sid's gone. Can I fucking find her? He's looking around, you know, he's flipping fucking shit all over the place. Mm-hmm. But from behind the bar, we see a woman's hand pick up a little uh, ice bucket of uh, filled with bar tools. And, cl- and then grabs a ice pick, ice out, pick of it. out of it. But this is when Roman gets the right idea to call her phone back. Mm-hmm. And sees like her phone will go off and be able to find her. Well, this is also pretty, um, uh, there's a lot of guesswork to this because Roman doesn't may not even know that she still has it on her. Yeah, but he, so he's like he's gonna try anyway, and he's about to call her, but we see another hand call phone, and his phone goes off. Yep, she's star sixty nines, and just when he's about to hit send for calling Sid, he gets an incoming call. His phone starts ringing, where he realizes, oh shit, she's here. Yeah, and she jumps up from behind the bar and stabs him right in the fucking back of the like like the neck shoulder joint with the ice pick now <laughs> um, nev campbell missed the pads that were on scott trolley's shoulder and literally stabbed them now even if it's a retractable ice pick an ice pick is still an extremely thin piece of metal even if it's retractable hitting someone that hard with it it's gonna fucking hurt like hell especially if you hit him right at the fucking area where like your, your your shoulder, neck, and deltoid meet. That's a very sensitive area. And so that it's, scream that he, Sorry, it, not deltoid. That scream that Scott screams out is legit. Is legit. And then she goes to stand. You could tell the second time she didn't really get it. Yeah. So. And, which is a funny, like, callback because she steps up with an ice pick again. It's like that when uh, Tatum brings up, like, what about uh, Basic Instinct? That was an ice pick. Not exactly the same thing. Mm. But before that, he's laying on the ground saying, I shot you. And she reveals that she's been wearing a bulletproof vest, too. She left up her shirt. She took Wallace's bulletproof vest before she left, saying, mm-hmm. I guess we think alike. And he even confesses, I still got mother's dead. No, nothing you can do about that. I still got to make my movie. She says, stab three, right? Stab three, right. And, and then she stabs him right in the heart with the ice pick. But um, he's still wearing a bulletproof vest, you know, like it might... There might be some stoppage right there. It might not go through all the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even our Lord and Savior Jim Cornette wore a bulletproof vest in order not to get stabbed in, yes. uh, in uh, small towns. So Dewey and Gale manage to break through. They find Kincaid there. You know, they check on him. He's alive Dewey, again. Dewey, yep. Somehow. He's still alive, even if he's getting hit in the back of the head with a big fucking chair. Dewey and Gale run over. They say, oh, my God, it was Roman all along. And Roman 
it's during his dying breath, Sydney holds his hand. Yeah. Like acceptance moment there. Acceptance, but I think deep down there's a degree, high degree of sympathy coming from Sydney because she understands that like even you if you hate me, family. even if you tried to fucking kill me and all this stuff, even though I think that you're wrong and you're as in her words, a spineless bastard for doing this, you still lived a fucking rough life and that the sins of our mother and the things that happened to her affected you too. You know, it's not there's a moment not, of understanding there. It's not all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> Just most of it. Yes. <laughs> so she holds his hand until he fucking dies. And then Dewey remarks like, hey, be careful. Killer's supposed to be superhuman. superhuman. She says he wasn't superhuman at all. But he was. He stands up. The ice pick is still in his chest dangling. Dewey starts opening fire on him. Not realizing he has a bulletproof vest on. Yes. And they, Sydney has to scream at him like four times, Head, Dewey! Head, Dewey! So shoot, finally, him, shoot him in the head. Finally, Dewey gets it and shoots him in the head. I do not like the fact that Dewey's the one who kills him. Yeah? Yeah, I think it should have been It should have been Sid. All right. I, I'm with you with that. And I just feel like because so much of the movie is like, like a lot of the female characters are just screaming Dewey's name the entire time to come save him. I'm just like, it's just so counterintuitive to how this, this series was. And like, if you've got to count on Dewey to save you, shit. This guy just stuffed... <laughs> Trees is into an outlet. Fucking just make sure your life insurance policy is up to date. But, you know, we fade to days later, weeks later, probably back at Sid's house. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's there. Dewey, Gail, Kincaid. Uh, Out on the porch, you know, Gail's looking out. Dewey comes out there with her with a book in his hand. They say she's doing great. Sydney seems to have just her spirits lifted. She's Mm -hmm. there with a dog. She seems like a new woman. Gail asks, what are you doing with that? It's a copy of the Woodsboro Murders, her original book. She asks, if you, which you cited for me, it's kind of weird. She thinks it's kind of weird. Strange. You hate that book. She's like, I'm done with that kind of reporting. It's like, they're all going to move on from this. So he asks, from, insists. she opens it up, and inside, it's the whole thing where, like, many of the pages, like are an inch thick out. of the pages are cut out and hollowed out, and there's a wedding ring inside. Which... At this time, they were actually married at this point. Yep. They did, that Courtney Cox and David Arquette were a married couple at this point. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that, that these two would get together. And it is really sweet to see this. Oh, yeah. Dewey says, I know it'll work. You know it'll work. But but what if we're wrong? Can we try? You know? Yeah. So she agrees and uh, Dale and Gooey. <laughs> <laughs> Dale and Gooey. Dale and Gooey. <laughs> Sounds like a bad porno. Dale and Gooey. The misadventures of Dale and Gooey. What will they get into next? <laughs> Boing. Yep. So Sydney, Sydney, symbolically, before, in the beginning of the movie, when we first see her, she just opens the side gate to her house, mm-hmm. closes it, arms everything. This time she opens the big gates, both yep. big gates, and leaves them open. Symbolism. Yep, symbolism. She's just walking back nicely. She gets into her house, goes to set the alarm out of force of habit, but, you know, decides not to. Yeah. Um, she turns around. There's Kincaid. He's got his arm in a sling. He got fucked up. He's got a bowl of popcorn saying, we've been waiting for you. Uh, Which we're going to watch a movie. They, they didn't know if he was going to be in this scene or not. Yeah. And so they just reshot it multiple ways. So what kind of movie? Oh, you'll have to see. So they go all in there, and the wind blows the door open. But Sydney just looks at it. Smirks. Open for another sequel? Or... And, and walks away. Or she's just like, I'm by... She's fine. She's going to be okay with it. I believe the latter. Yeah, I think so too. She looked at it and says, it's over. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah. Same thing with the opening of the fences. She mm-hmm. She's she's opened her gates. Yeah. She's wide open there, man. No. 
Not like that. Leave Gooey and Dale out of this, okay? Gooey and Dale. (laughs) Mark it on your calendars, folks. I don't know when it's coming out, but Gooey and Dale. (laughs) So. Dale and Gooey. Final thoughts. Well, theatrical cut before we get into deleted scenes. Well, here's the funny part. We were going to get in deleted scenes. We probably still will, but we kind of described most of them. Yeah, you know? we have we have two different alternate openings for... Um, Much of it is alternate openings and the alternate ending, which we described. Yeah. The alternate opening is like Cotton coming home at one point and having a different fight with the killer in his office where he tries to go out... He tries to climb out the... A skylight. Skylight, which we see briefly there, which... And he gets stabbed in the ankle before getting stabbed in the head. He gets that, stabbed through the ankle, like the knife comes out the other fucking side of his leg. The reason why they didn't do it is because it made the ghost chase look a little weak, so they decided against that. Cotton um, kind of won that fight a little too easy at first. The second one is that he's on the phone with Christine for most of the time going back and forth. And she, she's down the, down the street of the Starbucks and comes back to the apartment. But she, but Cotton's searching the entire place, opens one closet, and Christine falls out dead. Wait, what? We don't even know if it's actually Kelly Rutherford. She's mostly I think it's obscured. a different actress, yeah. Yeah, but that's where we get the first idea that, um, was it, that of the of the whole voice box thing. How Cotton is using a, uh, not Cotton, how the killer is using a freaking... Um, voice changer like that. Yeah, voice changer. And then that's when the killer comes up and stabs in the back. And it's like, so those are the two different alternate openings there. And the, then the, the old, lead scene is with the cast members considering what happened after Sarah got killed. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, the alternate ending, like we said, it's a more condensed version where there's the game of cat and mouse. Sydney eventually hides behind the bar like she crawls back past uh, John Milton's dead body. We see her slowly take the, um, we see her slowly take the little, the little bucket, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then take it out, and then the whole phone thing, and that one, you know, Kincaid's not in at all. Yeah. So that was they decided to reshoot that because, like, the, the guy just fucking disappears, basically. Like, right. I, I guess we're just meant to believe that he's just, you know, kind of laying there dead, presumably. And one of the other uh, deleted scenes is an extended thing of uh, Candy pulling up to the studio, basically harassing the uh, security guard there for not letting her in right away, right, and recognizing her. Yeah. But I guess when we get into the next part about how to watch this, which it's like I said, folks, it's gonna be the, it's good pretty much gonna be the same all the way through until Scream Four, yeah, Blu-ray set, yeah. In I don't remember what year it was, but when this got a DVD release, I remember seeing a lot of TV spots and commercials of it being hyped up as a really like special edition thing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about all these deleted scenes and an alternate ending. And when they said alternate ending, they're showing the shot of Roman taking the mask off, or Ghostface taking the mask off, but instead they had the face, like, dotted out and a question mark over it, like, teasing, oh, my God, was someone else supposed to be the killer? I have never seen any of that, so I'm just wondering, was that there as, like, just advertising? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, my God, somebody else is going to be the killer. And then when you get the fucking DVD, oh, no, it's just the same person. Yeah. So, but to skip ahead to that part, you know, by the fucking, by the Blu-ray set. Yes. That's basically what I get with. And since we've gone through it and everything like that, your final thoughts on the wrap-up of this original trilogy then? You know, I, it's an awesome story. It's an awesome story. I, I don't feel it's perfect. It fucking does stumble. I mean, Scream 3 only got, you know, Scream 3 only has a 
six percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. So that's pretty. I don't put that much stock in Rotten Tomatoes anyway. But it, I'm going to just because it, it, it's an aggregator. Like everyone says, oh, they should shut down Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is not dishing out the fucking reviews. Rotten Tomatoes is taking everyone's reviews and just combining them together to give you a percentage but and an idea. Critics have gone on the record saying. In order to stay critics, they need to make po- do more positive reviews. I guess, but yeah, and also they combine every review from like the beginning of fucking time. Like there will be when you go see like a fucking review on there for a movie that wasn't popular at release on Rotten Tomatoes, it'll still be there mm-hmm. for many movies. Right. Like Roger Ebert like gave a scathing review of the thing, and then he had that redacted and did a yeah. one years later. So it's not truly reflective of how the movie's held up it's a it's a collection of how it's been reviewed throughout history you know right but i personally i enjoy the hell out of scream 3 as i've said we've given it its criticisms but nothing out of it that kills the movie for me mm-hmm. nothing out of it where i look at and it just bothers me for like you know the rest of fucking time and it uh what was it, it earned fucking you know, $34 million in its opening weekend, ranking number one, and it went on to make um, $161.8 million, making it only the second lowest financially performing Behind Scream 4. Yep. And it is weird that they dropped in February at the time, which was kind of like a dead zone for movies. Do you think that the studio did not have faith in the movie? Um, I don't know. I think it might have had more to do with all the real-life controversy going around. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, because production did kind of get wobbled there a bit with Columbine. Right. So it wasn't, I mean, no scream has ever really been the smoothest ride. No. But I, I think that had more of an effect with it than, than just, you know, the, the whole beginning of the year garbage <laughs> dump that movie studios do. Right. The post-Oscar se- Oscar season. Uh, Drek. Yeah. As... As uh, the awesome red letter media call, calls it, fuck you, it's January. <laughs> I'm sure even February gets a little bit of a bleed over from fuck you, it's January. Yeah, I mean, like, it's changed as his Deadpool mm-hmm. because that came out on Valentine's Day. So that's kind of changed the landscape and the fact that summer starts earlier and earlier because of blockbusters these years. Yeah. Uh, recently, so. Truthfully, I think, I, I, I think if a movie's got a degree of hype to it, you could release it at any time and people will go to see it. Yes. My feelings are, I do feel like this is the weakest of the three, but I do enjoy the revelation at the end. I think that pulls it all back together for me. Timeline-wise, if you put a few more extra years on that, so continuity-wise, it makes a little more sense. I buy that. He should have said, like, five years. Five, six years. It doesn't, yeah, it makes it a little bit easier for me yeah. to swallow. Um, would it have been cool to see two killers and everything, and, like, the whole, like, I was happy with one. I was happy with them changing up the formula because of the fact that this is that the entire events of the whole trilogy was all because of this one person. Right. That he fucking got the ball rolling. But um yes, I, I do enjoy it. It does suck that Nev Campbell's not in it as much as she could have been or should have been. But like it makes sense why she took a backseat because she wants to be isolated. So it, at least it's story wise, logically it it's it's recognizes that she wants to be isolated and by this third time that this shit's happening everyone knows that it's her that this person is out for so let's fucking protect her yeah the Uh, rest of you are expendable right (laughs) and so 
it, I feel like Dewey becomes like the kind of center figure here, and like all the women screaming like Dewey, Dewey, help me! Like I find that's a little grating. I wouldn't be fucking screaming for Dewey to help me. No, um, I think Courtney Cox and uh, Parker Posey are fantastic in this. Well, at the same time, to be fair. If, to be fair. To be fair, if you're in a situation like that, you'll be screaming for your friend that you know is nearby. Yeah, true. It's not so much, this person, come help me. It's just, fucking, my friend who I know I'm with, help me, because I trust you. Right. And so, like, usually, if I have time, I'll put on screen one and two back-to-back. It's rare that I'll sit down all three, but if I have the time, I have, like, a marathon. Like, I, I'm not, like, a post. I don't skip it. It's not like a Halloween 6 situation where I'd like, no, I, I refuse to watch this whatsoever. It's more of a Halloween Resurrection where I f- I'll watch Halloween 6 10 times before I'll watch Halloween Resurrection once. Right. It's not like that. Um, I, I, I think like having it said in Hollywood, kind of it, like I mentioned before, it's a little bit of detachment for the audience, but it makes sense because it's all about movies. The movies making fun of movies the entire time, so it makes sense that it takes place in Hollywood. I think it's appropriate that it does because of the fact that, like, look in the previous one, we have, you know, Stab the Movie, and now we're on Stab 3 where things are even bigger. Yeah. And you also, you know, I feel like everything fell into place for me. Right. Everything really did. But I think what's Craven, like, does elevate the kind of mismatched script and, like, how this... How this movie came together as good as it did is a miracle to me. Like how you much could say that was... about all three. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think Wes Craven did a fantastic job. It's nice to see the crew back to be able to do this. And yeah, and if we never got uh, I, like if we never got another one, I would have been happy with it. Not saying I'm that happy with the Scream Four, but I think this was a solid trilogy. Oh, totally. And then, like, Randy even says that's a rarity for the horror field because usually you just fucking pound out sequels until money or critical reception runs out. Exactly. All right, then. And so I know you don't have any social media to plug, so you don't have to do that. Uh, follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012. My other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF Forum Retro Show. It's a very similar format to this where myself, Guy Milks, and Jamie Drew talk about movies when it comes to anniversary. You can find that show and all the other shows at rf4rm.com, as well as my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Jack 2, is up. And if you want to help support the show, leave us a five-star and written review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. It really helps get the word out there, and more people listening is, I think, a very beneficial thing for us. And if you want to listen to us on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, we're all available there. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do Scream 3 with me. Yay! <laughs> yes. Next so, month, Scream 4, and then I don't know how the hell we're going to do Scream the series. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, figure that we'll, out. we'll figure it out as we go. So come back next time as you two talk about a geek and pop culture topic, and we'll speak to you soon.